Welcome to ROH Strong Podcast. Here is your host, Kevin Eck. What's up, Honor Nation? Welcome to episode 74 of the ROH Strong Podcast, the official podcast of Ring of Honor Wrestling. Now, my guest today may not be a familiar name to a lot of wrestling fans, but he has made his mark on the industry nonetheless. He is the promoter and co-owner of MCW Pro Wrestling in Maryland, which is one of the leading independent promotions in the country. His training center has produced a number of performers on RRH's current roster, as well as some former WWE stars. He's worked with some of the biggest names in the business. He's also wrestled for a number of years, and he has a ton of great stories. He is my close, longtime personal friend, Dan McDevitt. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, Kevin. How, thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm uh, happy to be a part of it. Yeah, man. Really I'm proud to have me on. I've been really looking forward to this because um, obviously you and I have known each other for a long time, and, and I know a lot of your stories. You got a lot of great stories, and so that's why I think, you know, to bring it to a wider audience today. And, and like I said in the intro, there is a connection between a long connection between MCW and, uh, and Ring of Honor. But I want to let me first talk about, um, I know that MCW recently started running shows again. How long was it? How many months or I guess, man, it was probably over a year, right? That how long? 17 months. <clears throat> 17 months. Wow. Because of the, obviously because of the, the pandemic. Um, I don't want you to get any heat, obviously, with the Maryland State Athletic Commission, but I think we've talked about it on this show before that they have pretty strict, uh, they're all just pretty strict in general. And uh, we've talked many times on here about the ROH bubble and all the testing protocols. Let me ask you, though, as far as uh, being an indie promoter, uh, the challenges of running an, in, uh, an indie show in, in the COVID area and, and working with the commission. Yeah, so I don't really care about getting heat, <laughs> um, but you know, so it's different, obviously. And um, first, let me just say I, I appreciate you know Ring of Honor to the people in the office of Ring of Honor for approving and allowing me to be on the podcast. Um, that it means a lot to me that they that they gave the okay to bring me on. Um, the big thing I think with was yes, Mar- Maryland is probably it always has been one of the strictest commissions. Um, and I've had this, I've been promoting shows since 1993, 94, I guess I promoted my first pro wrestling show. So pushing 30 years. Um, and it's always, it, it's been a love hate relationship. It gets frustrating at points, but I also appreciate as I've gotten older, what, um, what commissions do for professional wrestling. Um, and some of the things that they prevent. <clears throat> so, because you have to, there are certain things you have to have in order to be able to run shows. But for the COVID era, as, as far to be more direct, um, one of the reasons Ring of Honor honestly was able to get up and going um, sooner, and it still took them a while, was obviously because of their resources um, from Sinclair. Uh, because I don't even know if people appreciate how much ring of honor did to protect talent or what they had to go through um i don't and taking nothing away from AEW or some of the other promotions wwe i don't think anybody went through more of a safety protocol than what ring of honor went through for several tapings um when they had the bubble it was so um 
I mean, just from a cost wise, um, unbelievable. And, and for us, it just wasn't, um, it wasn't feasible, obviously, you know, I understand ring of honor has national television. We're just an independent promotion. So we don't have like television that we had to put out, but it was, um, it's still pretty difficult, but for the first, I'd say six months when ring of honor was doing the tapings, what, what they were going through was really, it was kind of mind blowing everything that they had to go through, um, from a health and safety protocol to be able to, you know, put those tapings together and do it. It was, um, so it's, it's been tough and they're, you know, the commissions, they, they've lightened up a little bit. One of the things I guess that helped us was the governor of the state of Maryland, um, pulling back a lot of regulations, which allowed us to even be in a position to get to where we could do a show to where we could make it feasible to do a show. So, right. Right. Because you alluded to it. I mean, you are an independent promotion. As I said, you're one of the leading independent promotions in the country, but still in India and obviously don't have the budget of a, no, any national promotion. So you couldn't really afford to do bubbles or, you know, the strict uh, testing because it, yeah. it is quite expensive. So to be honest, I don't even think with what ring of honor was spending and not throwing numbers out there. And obviously I'm not on the know of exact numbers, but from my understanding of what they were spending for health and safety protocols, even if we would have had a live event, I don't know if a gate would have covered just their health and safety protocols that right. they were putting out to comply with um, state health guidelines, with CDC guidelines. And I think, I believe they, that, that Ring of Honor and Sinclair was even going beyond that um, than what they were required just to make sure every the talent and everyone associated with it was 100% protected and, and evident by they had, they had no issues. Um, so yeah, I don't even think if they had had if those guidelines were still in place once they opened it back up for us to do live shows again, I don't think I still don't think I would have been able to do shows because I don't think I would have been able to, to cover those costs. Right, right. Well, you know the good thing too is we did have a few um, uh, positive tests and we were able to get a, ahead of that and um, and you know have some people sit out a couple of shows or you know a set of tapings uh, while they while they recovered. So. Right, but you didn't have any any issues with like any spread or, or anything. Oh no, you know? absolutely yeah, not. No issues, no issues like that. And thank God, you know, with the with the pre testing protocols, we were able to catch a few, and um and ha like I said, have have those talents sit out and and come back for the next set of tapings. So let me ask you this though: I I know how much you love this stuff. Uh, I know how much you love the business. I know how much you love promoting. How difficult was it for you personally to be on the sidelines? Or as you said, 17 months, MCW could not run a show. So it, at first, it wasn't that hard, honestly, because I didn't even realize, again, we've been, we've been going pretty hard. I mean, for independent promotions, we, we probably average, I don't know, 25 shows a year, um, which is we do a lot more than a lot than most indies. Um, and we had a couple buildings that we were running regularly. We had high school fundraisers we were doing. So um, also having a full-time job and being a parent, um, you know, I didn't realize how, and my partner the same way with kids in college. And then we have our training center that we oversee and birthday parties that we do. Um, so we didn't even realize, I think, how kind of burnt out I was getting. So for the first couple months, it, it actually was kind of like, okay, um, I was able to take a deep breath and I realized, man, I think I was getting a little burnt out and I didn't even realize, you know, you, you don't realize it, it sneaks up on you because 
I, you love what you do. And I mean, I'm pushing 50 years old and still is, I love it as much as I did, um, you know, when I was 18, 19, getting into it myself. But after a couple months, it, I started to realize it went from, okay, I felt I was feeling a little burnt out to I caught my breath. And then probably by about four, once it got to be like four or five months, I kind of started to go, whoa, man, I really miss doing this. And then by a year, once we were at a year, and I think I had discussed with you, that's when I started, we were like a year into it, <clears throat> being shut down a year. And I started really talking with the athletic commission and I was starting to get frustrated. Um, and you know that like, so it, it went from being relieved to like, I'm kind of burnt out to catch my breath to, man, I kind of miss this to man. I really, I can't stand not doing this. I didn't realize how much I miss it. Um, you know, it's that old saying, you don't know what it's, you don't know how much you love something until it's gone. You know, the old cliche, but right. uh, yep. so yeah, by about a year into it, those last five or six months were really tough just trying to get answers and, uh, then just, you know, the goalposts, it was, you know, you know, a lot, there was a lot of goalposts being pushed back continuously and then being told things that didn't make sense and, and, and frustration from about the year point on to 17 months or so when we finally did our first show in July. So, right. And now you are back up and running at least um, as of this point, obviously it's a fluid situation with COVID uh, guidelines are, are constantly changing and there's mandates. And, and so, you know, it's, it, like I said, it's fluid and we'll see where, you know, fingers crossed that things go well from here. And, and obviously you guys and, and ring of honor too can, you know, we can keep doing shows with fans. Uh, right. That would be, that would be obviously the, the goal. Well, we, we've talked a little bit um, about the, uh, the relationship between uh, ring of honor and MCW. Um, currently MCW is the home to uh, future of honor. Uh, obviously with the pandemic, we, the, it's kind of put that on hold for a little bit. We're not running future of honor shows right now, but when we did, we had them at the MCW arena and we were bringing in ring of honor talent, um, to work with, uh, some of the local independent talent there in MCW. Uh, there's, in fact, let me give a little plug, uh, coming up on ROH week by week tomorrow. Uh, if you're listening to this on Monday, it is tomorrow. Uh, that it premieres on YouTube. We're going to have a match from MCW, uh, the recent card, Shane Taylor Promotions defending the six-man championship against MCW's Black Wall Street. So you will get to see a match on a Ring of Honor program that took place in the MCW arena. Dan, that must just be a source of pride for you as well, to have the Ring of Honor six-man championships defended on your show and then have it broadcast on a Ring of Honor program. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it's, um, I'm really happy with the re the relationship. And honestly, I, I just think, I think it's kind of a natural fit. I mean, I, you know, I think we've, we've kind of established ourselves on the independence scene. We've been around since 1998. And I mean, we're right in, we're, we're, uh, you know, it's like our, it's right in our backyard. Uh, right. Ring of Honor is right in Baltimore. I think, I kind of feel like it's just, it was meant to be. Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with too, like, I'm, I'm very comfortable with where our position is, you know, there's a lot of egos and all in, in professional wrestling. And, um, I'm really comfortable with where our position is as MCW, um, 
you know, where we are, where we fall on the, on the, on the scheme of things in, in the wrestling industry. And, you know, we're an independent promotion. I, I feel that's earned respect as a quality indie and putting out quality talent. I think it's kind of, it's a natural fit for us to kind of be, uh, you know, uh, you know, on underneath ring of honor and helping, you know, helping kind of develop, um, you know, some of the talent that goes through there. I feel like it's just a natural fit for us. Absolutely. And let's, let's look at the current, um, Ring of Honor roster. Our six-man tag team champions, as we just talked about, Moses and Khan, Soldiers of Savagery, came through the MCW uh, Pro Wrestling Training Center. Uh, Joe Keys, Dante Caballero, mm-hmm. Ken Dixon. Um, they all started their – did all of them start their training with MCW? Yep. Or, uh, yeah, they all started, yep. And yep, they were they all, all – and um, a lot of them were in the same class, right? Yeah, a lot of them, a lot of them were – um, a lot of them were in the same class. Uh, I think like Hugh may have been or um, Moses would like right after, but they were, all, they were all really close relatively within a couple classes of each other, but, but they all, they train together, you know, and, and just like many wrestling schools, um, people get, I've been doing and training wrestlers since 1997 um, when I opened up the first school and, you know, it rest the wrestling schools is something that, you know, um, over the 25 years, probably a thousand or 1500 people have come through, but wow. they, it, it weeds itself out, um, because it's, it's not what everybody thinks and it's not as easy as everyone thinks. So those are the guys that kind of, you know, and the, the, a lot of those guys, you know, are the, are the hardest workers that, you know, SOS and, um, you know, Joe Keys and, um, Ken and Dante, um, and they kind of, they kind of stepped up and, and, and became like, you know, a, a trainers or assistant trainers at our school. So, you know, but they're the, they're the guys that rose through a lot, a lot of guys, a lot of guys come through the training centers and un- unfortunately a, a large majority of them don't, you know, weed themselves out. Now, Eric Martin's another guy we've seen on Ring of Honor television. Did he, uh, start training at MCW or did he start somewhere else and then come into MCW? He started somewhere else. He started up in Pennsylvania. Okay. And he started working with um, Mike Keener, who's just a veteran referee out there, mm-hmm. um, you know, on the indies. And then they trained a little bit. I, I think he went out and trained a little bit with the Monster Factory. But he's kind of came down or he comes down and he trains with us. Um, you know, he started working out with a lot of our guys. And um, since the pandemic, a lot of the you know guys from the dojo have kind of migrated. So we got we got a really good group of guys down there, guys and girls training down there. Um, and uh, yeah, he's pretty much down there regularly now, but he didn't start with us, but I'm kind of glad he ended up with us because he's a good kid. Yeah, he is. I think all those guys have shown, um, number one, they've certainly had good training to start with. And I think the fact that they've made it to the ring of honor dojo made it to ring of honor television. I mean, it says a lot about them obviously, but it says something for sure about where they started and the education yeah, that yeah. they got, uh, in MCW. One other guy and, and something yeah. real quick, something that comes with that that can't be taught that all those guys and I see it in Eric Martin, and I've said this like I years ago I stopped trying to predict who would make it and who wouldn't because I so many people would prove me wrong. The one thing that you can't implement or train teach like you can give them a foundation, but they they got to have the heart and they got to have that 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 um passion and desire and you know to push through. And um, that, I see that in Eric and all these other guys we're talking about. So um, that's something that, that you can't teach, you know, right. that just, 
comes natural in a talent. And obviously all of those guys, like I said, they all have uh, bright futures, but I want to single out Moses and Khan for a second, SOS, because obviously I, I've, I've seen them since pretty much day one. And I think you could see there was potential there for sure. Um, but I got to say, I'm surprised with how quickly uh, they have made it. I mean, to be Ring of Honor, World Six-Man Tag Team Champions, um, again, it, it happened, I think, in relatively short order. And to see how far they've come, I mean, let's, you know, let's pull the curtain back here when, when uh, you know, I've done some managing in, uh, in MCW, and you would put a, a group together that had a couple of more veteran guys as sort of the... Uh, or one guy in particular, sort of the leader of the group. And they were, you know, Moses and Khan were kind of in the background. And right. it didn't take long for those guys to break out of that group and become the stars, become MCW tag team champions, get noticed by Ring of Honor, and here they are, six-man tag team champions. Um, are you surprised at how quickly they've just climbed the ladder? I'm not, because I – so – because – and I always I talk about Moses a lot – um, when I talk about those guys, I'm not because when I just talked about that heart, like mm -hmm. um, Moses was a guy that when he started, Khan hadn't even started at the training center yet. And Moses was a lot heavier. <clears throat> um, he was a lot heavier, but he was a good guy. And I could, I could see down at the training center and the guys, Dean and RJ at the time would tell me, they'd say, man, this guy, you could see the heart in him, even though he was struggling because of his weight at the time and then he had a bad knee injury where he had to have surgery tore a knee um got a knee injury and um that is always a deciding factor especially when someone's really early in their training um because a lot for a lot of over the years i've seen a lot of like bad injuries happen you know unfortunately early in someone's training sometimes before they even make their debut and that's usually like the test you know, the litmus test of are they going to are they going to come back or are they going to say the heck with this man? This ain't worth it. Like this is too much. And um, he was even after his surgery, before he could even do anything, he would come down to school and he would just watch and he would sit and just, you know, even though he couldn't get in the ring like he didn't want to be away from it. And I just talk about that heart. I saw that in him then was like, man, this this guy's going to be all right. And we would talk about it like, yeah, I'd be like yeah, he's going to be good. Like you can see it in his heart. Like he's not letting anything stop him. And then he came back and not only did he come back from that, he dropped a ton of weight and got in tremendous shape. And um, yeah, then once sometimes, sometimes people just gel. Um, tag teams are weird. Sometimes you don't, <clears throat> people end up together and sometimes they work hard to get a chemistry and some people just kind of end up with, saw a natural type of chemistry. So I'm not surprised because of that, because I saw that heart in Moses. Um, Khan was one of those, those, all those few examples of people that come in and you're like, this guy is freaking ripped, man. This guy is, you know what I mean? Like you just kind of, some people like Khan come in and, th and this is a test, not a knock on him. It's a testament, a guy that was just you know, obviously an athlete, had been an athlete all his life was in tremendous shape and he came in and it's like, man, if he just has the heart and he picks this up, he's, you know, yeah. he's going to be easy because he just, he just came in and he was just, you know, he just looked great. Yeah, so, he, definitely, no, he, definitely, he definitely passed the eyeball test. <laughs> no question. Yeah. Well, 100%. And Moses <laughs> was just the opposite, but worked so incredibly hard and I respect him so much 
for how hard he worked to um to kind of overcome the obstacles that were in front of him but um it's that heart man it's it's that thing that we can't teach that i saw in him that you know a lot of people in his situation probably would have quit that were struggling with it the training at first like physical conditioning wise and then to have a major injury where you have to have surgery on your knee and you know potentially push back eight months to a year and then to still be like you know what i'm going to overcome and i'm going to deal with all this and, and man he's you know i'm really really proud of him for a guy that's that's done everything and pushed as hard as he has to to get where he is so i'm not surprised actually for that so, so there's another guy uh who's associated with MCW. He's a guy uh, we know very well around here at Ring of Honor. He's a guy I don't care for very much. It's the Mecca Brian Johnson. And, uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I got it. He's, he's a jerk. I mean, let's be, let's be honest about it. But um, he's, the, he's the least liked guy, I think, in the ROH locker room. He's just a miserable human being. But let's give him his due. I mean, he, here's a guy who's been on the indies, I believe, since, like, at least maybe, like, 2008. And as a guy who's just been grinding and grinding and kept going and never gave up and finally, finally got a, you know, a little break, you know, the door opened a little bit in ring of honor and uh, you know, he came through that door and, you know, look at what he's doing now. I mean, his promos are, I don't care what anybody says, his promos are as good as anybody's out there right now in any company. Um, And he, he's good in the ring and he looks good and it just goes to show, I mean, everybody's on a different uh, timetable. But like you say, I mean, talent and, and especially heart and determination, they eventually went out. And I hate that I'm putting him over like that. But um, he's actually got a role, uh, correct? He is, he's at mm-hmm. the MCW. What, what does he do for MCW? He has pretty much stepped in. Um, as you know, the guy that, that pretty much ran the training center for a long time was R.J. Meyer, wrestled as the bruiser. He was my main guy. And, you know, he was a, a foundation, definitely a big part of the foundation. And we lost him you know, about a year ago, unfortunately, because of leukemia. Um, and it was a big hole for us. I um, mean, and still has been a big hole for us. And Brian's pretty much stepped in as a trainer and kind of taken over that hole. Um, and he's helping us fill some really big shoes. And uh, I can see everything that you're saying about describing him. But I think when you when you grind, as long as he grinded, you know, you develop a chip on his, on your shoulder especially when you end up seeing guys come in two, three, four, five years in the business and get opportunities that you should have had. And like you said, wrestling's a funny business. It is about talent, but it's also about people's perception of you, whether that person be a matchmaker or booker or whatever, you know what I mean? And sometimes maybe people don't see in you what others see in you or what you see in yourself. Um, and I think that can develop some guys, people like him that, that have that heart and that non, that, you know, not going to quit attitude to develop a, a, a real chip on your shoulder. And I think, I think maybe that's probably kind of why you, you know, you see that in him because he's definitely a really talented guy. He absolutely is. He, he, he's an incredible talent. And, um, you know, even though he's come on this show and, uh, you know, uh, ridiculed me and insulted me and, and all, you know, like he does with everybody. But uh, I got to give the devil his due. I mean, he's a talented guy and he's certainly, he's not an overnight sensation and, uh, and he never gave up. And um, you know, it, it is, I would never tell him this, but yeah, it's, uh, I'm very happy for to see his success because I know again, how much he's wanted it and how hard he's worked to get it. And, uh, and now he's getting right. an opportunity and um, he's not, fun, you know, he's getting the ball and he hasn't fumbled, you know, every time you right. get it to him, 
he's crossing the goal line with it. So, uh, but hopefully he won't hear this because I, I never want to say good things about about Brian. <laughs> right, right. All right, but we're gonna we're gonna take our first break. We're just getting started here with Dan McDevitt, the uh, promoter and co-owner of MCW Pro Wrestling. So we'll be right back. It's been fun playing wrestling with y'all, but we got something even better. Honor Nation, it's the ROH Wrestling Honor Pals, the body slamming, drop kicking way to keep the fun going. We need some tougher competition. Now put a buck on! Jay Driller! She's the new Honor Pals champion. ROH Wrestling Honor Pals. Bring home your favorite star at shophonor.com. All right, we are back on the ROH Strong podcast with MCW Pro Wrestling promoter and co-owner Dan McDevitt. I want to continue the conversation, Dan, about um, because it is such a deep history with Ring of Honor and MCW. I remember back in the day, uh, you used to bring in guys like Samoa Joe, AJ Styles, uh, Christopher Daniels, Roderick Strong. You used to Mm -hmm. book those guys back when they were uh, in Ring of Honor. So I know you've always had that appreciation for ring of honor and uh and and what it represents and the talent that it has because obviously you book those guys on your shows yeah yeah i'd bring those guys in and obviously over the years different things have changed which understandably so um i totally get it as an independent promoter um the way that certain things have changed with certain talents where they lock up under contract and they want them exclusive it used to not make sense to me but it actually makes complete business sense that why would you want you know um a talent that's one of your main attractions to allow them to do an indie show and they do an indie show and God forbid, break an ankle and right. now they're out for six months and and they're one of your main attractions. So no matter what the major promotions it is, you know, ring of honor or the other ones, um, I understand how that's changed. It was nice 10, 15 years ago when you could do that as an indie promoter, you know what I mean? And you could go to a lot of, and book a lot of these top guys. So that's changed. Um, but understandably from a business, from a business standpoint as an independent promoter, if I had these guys under contract guaranteeing them big money, I understand why that's changed, but yeah, I'd, I'd always bring in, I was always a fan of ring of honor, um, and always liked a lot of the talent they produced. Well, and here's another thing that people may not know is that, uh, everyone's familiar that with the uh, ring of honor survival of the fittest tournament. Uh, but I bet a lot of people don't know that it actually is, uh, it, it was grown out of MCW's Shane Shamrock Memorial Cup. And that right. the um, the Shane Shamrock Memorial Cup was going to be, there was a relationship back, even back then, back in like, what, 2003, I guess. Three, maybe, yeah, yeah. Where um, the Shane Shamrock Cup was going to be part of Ring of Honor. You know, some things happened behind the scenes and it ended up, you know, not working out. but what Ring of Honor did was continue the legacy of the Shane Shamrock Memorial Cup by, by they na- renamed it Survival of the Fittest, but it was the same format. Same format. Yeah, same and format. Six, exactly. Six, right. Six qualifying matches and then the six-man elimination final. So that's a cool thing. When people watch Survival of the Fittest now, it was born out of, it, it, was, it was born in MCW. So that's another yeah. really cool thing, I think. Yeah, and what really happened, nothing that really happened, was basically we, we had pushed pause for a year or two right. um, with MCW back um, in 2003. At the time, I was getting married, and um, my partner at the time was 
some big changes in his life. He had just had a child. And we, at first, in our minds, of course, much like this business, um, when you're bit by it, you think you're going to, okay, I'm done. And then you realize, (laughs) well, maybe I just needed a break. Right. You know, so we were gonna, and then obviously it was, it was something we were going to give up, but then the Shane Shamrock cup is an important part of our history because, you know, it was dedicated for, you know, Brian Hauser, Shane Shamrock, who was wrestled for us. So obviously when we were decided we were going to start running shows again, we wanted, we did want to continue doing the Shane Shamrock is our Shane Shamrock cup is our big event every year. So yeah, ROH continued it, but changed it, you know, same format, but now, you know, calling survival of the fittest. Right. Well, and you mentioned MCW shut down. You hit the pause button in 2003. I believe it was about three years, right? So 2006 is when you came back. Uh, was it, was there ever any question in your mind that it simply was a pause button and not a, uh, not a, not a period at the end of the sentence? Did you always know it was just a matter of time that, that you would come back? Or did you really think, you know what, this is it. Like, um, I did this for, you know, whatever you said, nine, 10 years. And, and uh, now it's, I'm at a different point in life. I think um, for a minute, um, I think, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe six months um, at the, so at the time, at the time, um, you know, running independent shows, I mean, over the 30 years I've done it, I mean, it's almost cringeworthy now when you hear like people say like, I'm going to start an independent promotion. They have no idea. Right. what it takes no idea the finances that are lost i mean you know for the first couple of years we probably lost fifty thousand dollars um you know probably you know trying to do it so i we were in that it had taken a couple of years but it much like the stories of many businesses you hear how much money you lose trying to get it going and you're putting money out of pocket putting money out of pocket and then it's like eventually the light bulb comes on and you start to figure things out Maybe you figure small things out here and there and you begin to put the pieces of the puzzle together. So I think I was at a point where I, we were starting to put the pieces of the puzzle together. They were starting to come together. We were figuring things out. We had, you know, started, you know, got a couple guys and girls, their careers going, but it, it, it was so much emotional drain. And, and both of us, uh, me and my partner at the time, he had just had a child. I was about to get married and we're like, how can we move on with our lives and do these things with, um, all of this. And then once you, it was kind of balancing it out figuring, you know, um, figure finding a balance was probably the right thing. So when we came back, when we came back doing shows, I had gotten to a point where like, okay, I need to find a balance in my life and, but still be able to do stuff, something that I'm passionate about and love and can grow. Um, and that, that was it. So I would say the first maybe six months was, but then I started going, man, I really miss this, but I need to, I need to be able to, to find a balance and, and, and not have a hundred percent of my life committed to this, you know, so that I can focus on other things. So let's right. say, oh. yeah, that was probably it. Right. And in addition to, um, you know, I know yourself being a, a family man now, you're a father. Uh, so you obviously you have a personal life uh, that, that you need to, you know, that, you know, maybe you didn't have when you, like you said, before you were married and, and you were a single guy and all that. Um, you know, the other thing too, is you have a quote unquote, you know, shoot job. So mm-hmm. I know for a while, you, you know, this was almost like, I think you refer, you know, this was almost like your hobby in a way 
but I know it's become, you know, being a promoter has become more to you than that. And as you, as you alluded to the money investment, like you're going to lose, you know, a lot of money and let's be honest, you're never, you're never going to get rich running an independent promotion. You do it for the love of the game, as they say, but I will give you and your, your partner, Dennis Whipwreck, I'll give you guys credit because you have turned this into, um, I mean, this is more than a break even business for you guys, right? I mean, you have built this yeah. thing to where you, again, you're not, uh, you know, uh, going to make the fortune 500 list off of uh, running MCW, but you've turned this into a profitable business, which is no easy feat for an indie promoter, right? Right. No, we did. And it, but it took, you know, um, and that's what, when I get back to, when I said, like, I hear people say, oh, I'm going to start an independent promotion. I'm going to do this. I'd say it, it probably took us 15 years to figure it out. We've been doing it. I don't know, 23, I would say sometime, <laughs> some, some, some point in between the 10 and 15 year mark is where we kind of started to figure it out and really put the piece of puzzle pieces together. So, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, and that's why, unless you're someone coming in with a lot, a lot of money, it's just, yeah, it is. It, it, and it took a long time to build and we had to figure stuff out on our own. And you really, it's really something you, um, it's really something you learn by trial and error. And that's too, that's, that's after, you know, being in the business, you know, as a wrestler for seven or eight or nine years. So I had some experience in the business, but then I had to take a whole 10 or 15 years to learn, um, you know, just the promoting and, and through trial and error and making mistakes, big mistakes, some very, very costly mistakes. Right. So let me, let me throw another name out there who has, um, He's been in the news lately. Uh, it's Adam Cole. And mm -hmm. of course, all Ring of Honor fans remember Adam Cole as a uh, – he is still the only uh, three-time Ring of Honor world champion. Obviously, he just showed up in AEW recently. And, of course, everyone's familiar with you know what he did in uh, NXT. Here's a guy that I remember way back in, I don't know, 2007 maybe, maybe even before that, as Adam Carell at MCW mm -hmm. shows. And I remember looking at this guy and he was a great worker and good looking kid. And, and, um, you know, but I was just, I was in that old mentality of, you know, because I was a WWE fan for so many years and also, you know, even WCW, you're used to seeing these, these monsters, right? They're right. Big tall guys. And, and I'm just looking at him and I'm like, man, it's a shame that he's just small because man, this kid's so talented, but unfortunately he's just never going to make it. <laughs> I think yeah, I was yeah, so, about that one. Yeah, and and I I mean I'm not that's another one I'm not shocked. Um but yeah, obviously he didn't start he didn't start with us training wise, but he started in he, he was training in Philly. But what I can say about Adam Cole, I've always said about him is um that's one of the kindest, most respectful um, guys and another guy you know that kid MJF like the two of those guys are um, two of the kindest most respectful guys ever you know I mean Adam especially I've always said that and he and the thing about him to this day right now even getting and uh, attaining the success he has now um, is still a guy that you'll see and, it, and it, it's you know he's just so super respectful and will thank you, you know, years later for the things you did for him. Um, just a, a good kid. But one thing I always remembered about him, even though he was small and he's obviously put on weight since he, you know, was wrestling for me, you know, I guess 
12 years ago, 11 years ago. He's been doing this like 13, I think now. He was only a year in the business. And I remember the guy that was doing the booking for me at the time was like, you got to take a look at this kid. He's been coming down to shows and he wants to get started. I remember seeing him and he was like, I remember watching him in the ring and then guys saying like, Oh, he's been wrestling like a year. And I'm like, get out of here. Like I was, he was a guy that like, I saw, you could see just natural talent. I'd be like, no way. And then I'd ask him and he like, yeah, at the time he had like, you know, nine months or 13 months in the business. And I'm like, my, you could just see some, Sometimes you see this natural talent in people that, and he was one of those guys that always stuck out for me. I can't take credit for training him, but he did. I was one of the early indies that would use him a lot and he would work at regularly. Um, and a and, Shamrock uh, Yeah, Cup. I just saw that. Shamrock Yeah, Cup. and, a, and a, a Shane Shamrock Cup winner, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's great though, because like I said, I, I was of that mentality of, you know, I was, I bought into, you got to be, you know, 6'4 and 275 pounds and and I just, again, yeah, I looked at him, I said, man, this kid's so talented, but I never thought he could make it big, like as big as he has. Like maybe there's a role for a guy that size, but like he'll never be a world champion. He'll never be a main eventer. And I'm so glad the business changed enough to the point where you can be, you don't have to be a giant. As long as you have talent, right. as long as you can work, you have the it factor, charisma, you can speak, as long as you have those things, you don't have to have the size. And I think, you know, nowadays it's kind of reversed in a, in a sense. I yeah. think fans, if they see a big guy who's kind of lumbering, like um, they'll turn on him, you know, they want to see. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah. It's great how that's so, changed. And when all in all, he's just a good human being. So he, he's a guy that he's one of those guys when I see him making it the level he's at, I can't help but smile because amongst beyond all the talent, he's a really good human being. Yeah, the, any interaction I've ever had with him has been positive. I'll tell you what, though, I think you killed MJF's gimmick, be, saying that he's a nice guy. I think because I know, I know, I know. He, I know he probably wouldn't want me to say that. But he wouldn't that like dude that. Is, that dude is super, super. Another guy that I think like he deserves everything yep. that he's getting. Um, he, he's just super, super respectful and uh, super, super appreciative of anybody that's ever helped him out anyway. So. I remember he came into MCW and um, I saw him cutting a promo backstage. I wasn't really familiar with his work and I saw him cut a promo and it just blew me away. I mean, you could just see it right away. Yeah. Well, and you talk about, and here's something I've talked about as a good example for him and for like any like young indie people hanging out, you know, like that, that are trying to make it or trying to figure out how to get discovered, how to get on, because there's a ladder, right? Like I was saying before, I'm comfortable with MCW's rung on the ladder. ROH is way up the ladder, you know, a major national promotion, you know, with, um, you know, guys are getting contracts there and they're able to make a living working there. You know, MCW's down the ladder, We're but we're one of the top indies. We're one of the, say, you know, 15, 20 indies in the country that people want to work for because we've been around, we got a reputation. And it's so hard because I'm, I'm bombarded constantly with people, with emails, with people trying to get in. We have our students, people that train at the dojo, our regulars that have worked with us for years. So it's really hard to stand out and get seen because... <clears throat> Honestly, I don't have, you know, a bunch of employees. I don't have talent scouts that I can hire that just do talent, that just get on the internet and search for those next stars. So like MJF's a perfect example of a guy that was trying to get in with us. And you know what I noticed? You know what made me notice him? Is I said to the guys, RJ and Dean, that were running stuff, 
hey man who's this like this good looking kid like obviously he's a wrestler but he's been at the last three or four shows setting up and tearing down the ring yeah like i know he's not one of our students and they said yeah he's not he's from jersey you know mjf you know and um he's like he's a good kid he just wants an opportunity he comes and he helps set up and tear down i'm like seriously i was like blown away i'm like he's and I, he's like he's not we're not on the shows and then they're like no man he's just he just wants an opportunity so he comes down and he's helping set up the ring and tear down the ring and i said to him like man give this guy an opportunity yeah <laughs> like he's you know what i mean like i was just blown away by his humbleness you yep. know to do that and um and then he did. And then you start, you put him on shows. And like you said, and you see him cutting a promo and it's like, man, this kid's talented. <laughs> right. So that's, you know, what made him stand out to me, someone really busy that's like overwhelmed with way too many people trying to talk to him about getting an opportunity, but that stuck out just like going that extra mile and made him stick out to me and then give him an opportunity, you know, on the shows because you know, it, it kind of, he like pushed through the static. Right. And that's you know? the thing. I think and, sometimes people see a guy like him burst onto the national scene and it almost seems like, oh, he, you know, he's like he's an overnight sensation or whatever, but they don't know the fact that. No, man, he, he was grinding. He was grinding, showing yeah. up to MCW shows, coming down from, like you said, from New Jersey and setting up the ring and just hanging and out. And tearing it down and staying until there was no, every, everybody else was gone and the whole ring was broken down and the show was broken down oh. and drive back to New Jersey without a single guarantee of even getting an opportunity, you know? And, yep. And see, there's a guy like that and there's other li others like him too that just, you know, they're going to succeed because it's not just like it, it, talent's very important, obviously. That's going to be the, the ultimately what, you know, if you have talent, you're, you're going to make it somewhere. Um, but that drive and that determination and that just, you know, I'll do what I have to do because I'm not going to take no for an answer. And I know you've seen a lot of guys uh, come through MCW like that. I want to talk about, in fact, when you restarted the MCW Pro Wrestling Training Center, the school, uh, your first two graduates were Leo Rush and Patrick Clark, who people will know as the Velveteen Dream. Leo, of course, became the Ring of Honor top prospect tournament winner several years ago. Um, now, there, I'm going to guess, and I think we probably had this conversation, when, when those two guys walked into the school, it didn't take you long, right, to realize, okay, um, these guys are something special. No, because it's the same, this, literally the same, same thing as like when I mentioned Khan, who, and, and to take it back to kind of our conversation earlier, also in that class with Leo Rush and Velveteen Dream. I didn't know for sure before if you wanted to bring those two up, but <clears throat> that's Joe Keys, Ken Dixon. They all started in that class. So right. did uh, Renee Michelle, who people, I, I don't know if Renee's done a Ring of Honor stuff, but like Impact and WWE stuff. Um, she was in that class. But um, the same conversation about Khan, who Khan came maybe like a year after them. Same thing with those two where they walked in <laughs> and they were just in unbelievable shape they were both formal former amateur wrestlers they you know comp very competitive amateur wrestlers and they you know they had been athletes they were young kids maybe um i think they were like 18 and 19 they're like a year apart so they were like just old enough to sign up at the school um at 18 and 19 or maybe 19 and 20 but they were um yeah just unbelievable athletes that you could see and you couldn't 
they had that hunger where it started like, Hey, if we got here an hour early, could we get in? And the way our training center was set up, it's connected to like a market. That's like a, you know, where our facility is, uh, <clears throat> um, like an Amish market that's open sometimes during the weeks, but you could get in. So they'd say, they started asking, Hey, you know, the Amish market's open. We can get into the place. Can, if we come in an hour early and we started being okay, then all of a sudden it went to, they were there four and five hours early. You know, the school opened at six and they're showing up at noon. You know, we'd get down there because then people start saying something like, hey, you've had kids over there in the ring, you know, for four hours, just banging and clanging. And um, Then it, you know, so it was like, yeah, they were just the desire that they had to be there hours early and stay hours late, and, you know, then get, Hey, can we get a key? And just me and, you know, it was Leo and Patrick. They just wanted to stay and roll around. And then as they were there for a little bit, they got, you know, with like Joe keys and a couple of those other guys, but yeah, they, they were two that, um, definitely a hundred percent that they stood out from the day they walked in just because of their athleticism, right. You know, and where they were as athletes. So you, you oh. could tell like, man, these guys are going to go far, but they skyrocketed. Well, the thing with Leo is, you know, and I remember first time I saw Leo, he was, you know, wearing a yellow uh, shirt doing security, right, at MCW. Yeah. And, um, and it was a lot, I mean, he couldn't, you know, you got to pay some dues at first as, as, you know, as a student. So he wasn't ready to actually be on the shows yet at MCW. And then once he started on the shows, again, man, he, was, he blew you away with what he could do and his athleticism. And he quickly became a sought after talent on indies all over the place, all over the country. Yeah, um, yeah. And then, you know, obviously he gets on Ring of Ring of Honor's radar and comes in and wins the top prospect tournament. Next thing you know, it had it, you know, from the time I saw him wearing that yellow shirt to Jay Lethal asked to work with him personally when Jay Lethal was world champion at Supercard, one of, you know, ROH's biggest shows. I I'm I mean, I'm sure you know that, right? The Jay handpicked Yeah. Yeah. You know, to work with him at Supercard of Honor, so um and again, like Obviously, Leo is is a prodigy and has talent, but it comes from he is he's a graduate of the MCW Pro Wrestling Training Center. So clearly, you guys gave him the foundation. And uh, again, I, I'm just it just has to be such a source of pride. I know we're sort of repeating ourselves, but when you see these things happening, and I know you refer to all of these guys as your kids uh, to see them have the success. And let's talk about somebody else who's had success who came through MCW. And that's, uh, you know, anybody who watches WWE television will notice there's a female referee named Jessica Carr. She trained with you guys. She obviously uh, spent some time in Ring of Honor. She wrestled under mm -hmm. Jesse K at that point. But she's also another incredible story because, and I don't know how many people know her story or not, but she was not an athlete. In fact, she's talking. Right. She was uh, very overweight, but she was a huge wrestling fan. And she wanted to break into the business. And man, now there's a person I'm sure you may have yeah. seen and said, she's not going to me. I don't know me. I'll let you speak for yourself, but she's not, she wasn't con or Leo or, you know, no, like, she oh, wasn't. And yeah, she was 12, 13 years old in the front row of the MCW shows going to Dundalk, Maryland. And you know what I mean? Where we were running shows and monthly and her and her friends. And I think she was like 12 or 13 when she started coming. So literally went from a fan at our shows to training and you're right. Um, I, it's, it's, and I, so way I started training people way back in the mid 1990s, I probably learned by about like the early two thousands within a couple of years, like you could never discount people's heart and you can't see that. So I stopped looking at people like, Oh, that person is never going to make it. 
but you but obviously you would still have the people like Khan, like Leo, like Patrick, that you look at and go, "Holy cow, man! They're they're there's they're they're going to print money." You know what I mean? If they just figure this out, they can print money. Um, but yes, she definitely wasn't one of them, but a heart like I've never seen in anyone. And now, yeah, just killing it as a as a as a referee. She's a, a amazing referee for WWE on SmackDown brand now and um yeah she was a great wrestler too you know and yeah. I, i'm sure she'd you know in many ways she'd, she'd probably still be doing that but you know right but you know having a job in this industry where you can make a living doing something that's a you know make really good money doing something you love she's she's amazing at what she does and yeah just worked so hard and was she was very overweight um and just worked work work she's definitely somebody that uh, i look up to really really proud of Yes, and she's another one that was training in that class with Joe Keys and Leo. You know what I mean? That class is kind of like our Hall of Fame class, really. Like she was in that class as well with all those other people we talked about. Yeah, no, no, no question about it. And um, yeah, anybody who knows uh, Jesse Jessica um, is so happy for her success to know how far she has come. And yeah, I know that she wanted to make it as a wrestler and she was making a name for herself in women of honor and a lot of other independent promotions. And she got an opportunity with, uh, with, uh, WWE as a wrestler. I guess she had a tryout. I mean, you may know the details better than me, but, uh, I know, I think it was, uh, William Regal, uh, who pulled her aside and said, you know, maybe this isn't your time as a wrestler. Would you be interested in being a referee? And again, she was smart enough to, to say, well, this yeah. is the opportunity. And she ran with it. And she's a great ref. Yeah, absolutely. She's really, really good. Um, and yeah, she's, uh, you know, um, trailblazing in a lot of ways. That's so right. it's really good to see her there. But um, yeah, 100%. I'll talk about a couple other names that um, obviously people will know, household names that, Maybe you didn't, I think that, you know, the way to say it is you had a hand in training them, right? People like Lita, Mickey mm-hmm. Ames, um, and you also worked with the Hardys early on in their career. Did you train, They you didn't actually train them. No, no, booked. I didn't train them. I booked them. I met them on the Indies um, in the early 1990s, like 91, 92. Um, I started training, I started wrestling in like 1991. So 30 years ago now, good Lord. Um, and uh, yeah, I met them going and, and, and the Indies, it was so different then. I mean, it's hard to, I feel like I'm a dinosaur talking about days when social media, when the internet didn't exist, you know, when you, you heard there was tape trading and that's how you heard of, you know what I mean? And you would only hear like in the rumblings of newsletters, if you followed newsletters about, um, you know, about certain guys. And I had heard rumblings of these guys, Matt and Jeff Hardy in the Carolinas, and then started getting on indies in the Carolina and met with them and just kind of connected them. And then when I started running shows, they still, they had been doing jobs up at WWE, um, but they weren't here and there a little bit, but they, they had, they didn't have any type of real national recognition. And I started bringing them in. So I was bringing them up to, to Maryland um, to wrestle, you know, to kind of helping them get exposure when they were on their rise, probably within a year or so before they ended up getting a spot and all of a sudden started to get national recognition. So I did, I just, I developed a relationship with them and just started bringing them up here, but I didn't, I didn't actually train them. 
Right. And the cool so, thing with, with, with the Hardys is they never forgot where they came from. No. And they still came they, back and worked with you. I mean, there was a point where uh, the Broken Hardys gimmick was like the hottest thing in, in pro wrestling. And they came back and, and did a spot, did a show in, uh, in the MCW arena, which was filmed for TNA, for Impact Wrestling. And, um, man, I don't think I've ever heard a pop so loud on an indie show is when they came out and everyone was chanting, delete, delete, delete. And you had what? I mean, 1,500 people? I mean, I, Yeah, I, and it was the first time in a, that I've ever had a show, and I've never, in 30 years running a show, that I've literally turned away a couple hundred people. We had to stop letting people in um, because it was so packed. And it was, it was, it was right before they went back to WWE and also made a couple appearances in ring of honor. It was right in that time frame, Right. Um, so they were, I mean, not even red hot. They were, they were white hot. Um, they were just white hot and yeah. And they just, they always made stuff work for me. Whenever I called, I can't say enough good things about them. I mean, there was a time a couple years ago where they were, Matt and Jeff were doing something for me and we had a snowstorm and I had already had like a thousand tickets sold. And the only makeup date that we could do that like was available for Jeff and Matt was like um, Valentine's Day weekend. A couple of this was in show in January. And I was like, oh man, Matt's <laughs> never going to be able to do this with Revy. You know, but right. Matt like went to her as Valentine's Day, you know what I mean? And he called and was like, Dan, I'm not going to let you down. You're a friend. And we were able to, you know, I was like, oh, God, I'm going to have to refund a thousand tickets because Matt and Jeff or Matt and Jeff Hardy are a talent that there's no replacement for. So if you yeah. have to cancel and postpone a show, you're pretty much going to refund all the tickets for the people that came there because they're a unique talent that you're real. There's not really a replacement for them. It's like people are coming to see the Hardys. They're coming to see the Hardys. And, uh, yeah, so they've just been so good to me, you know, over the years and, and they've never forgotten that I helped them out and would bring them up when people didn't know who they were. And, um, they're just good, man. They're the same guys. I've always been stark defenders of, of Matt and Jeff Hardy. Cause they're this, to me, they're the same guys that they were 25 years ago when they were just indie guys from the Carolinas. Right. Yeah. And I, I didn't know them way back when, obviously, but, um, Got a, got an opportunity, thanks to you, uh, which I appreciate, to work with them in uh, MCW. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they couldn't have been any more uh, down-to-earth. And, obviously, I mean, look at, look at what these guys have accomplished in the business. But no ego, very easy to work with, very um, giving, you know, towards us, uh, you know, indie wrestlers and an indie manager, you know. Um, I just can't say enough good things about, about the, the two of them as well. Just, you know, how they handle themselves and, and carry themselves. Uh, yeah. They're great it's, guys. It's such a pro. They, they fall in that, they fall in that category of like Adam Cole and Jesse yeah. um, of just great human beings, man, really good people, you know, that deserve everything that they're getting. Well, I mentioned, gotten. absolutely. Well, I mentioned Lita and Mickey James as well. And how is it that you cross pa crossed paths with uh, the two of them? So Lita was because of Matt and Jeff. So like, and that's the one Lita, like on her Hall of Fame speech for WWE, I'm like the first mention, the first I, person that she mentions. That yeah, that was, that, so was that, awesome. was, that was, that was really cool. So that was because of Matt and Jeff, because at the time Matt and Matt had started on the road. They had, you know, Matt and, and Amy had already developed a relationship um, and they were helping her out. And they basically asked me, they knew that I was a reputable promoter with the school and, um, an indie promotion 
And um, Matt asked me, said, hey, like, he was like, you know, Amy was, he was like, she's really trying to get going. She's really talented. She was training in Mexico and they had started them on the road. And they're like, and she's like, she's in Richmond. So like she was in Richmond, which like was kind of like halfway between Carolina and Baltimore. So Matt was like, she was, she's been coming down, driving down and staying with us and training. <coughs> and, uh, but could you help? And they knew, you know, at that time I had this, the school was open like seven days a week. So she started, um, Amy started coming up, started coming up and, you know, cause Matt was on the road and, um, and then me and her just developed a friendship and relate. And I was same thing where like, I saw like, man, this girl wants it so bad. And then she'd start coming up. And as she mentioned in her like Hall of Fame speech, she'd stay at the school a lot. We, you know what I mean? She'd come and stay overnights. We were open like five or six nights a week. And then she'd just stay. She'd drive up from Richmond and she'd stay on the couch at a, at our wrestling school wow. for, you know, a couple of days and train. And then was another one that because of her look and because of her desire and, and how fast she was pushing herself at the time and would really kind of got her, her break and got her seen by WWE was getting an opportunity in ECW at the time, you know, as Miss Congeniality, I think was what her name was. That was it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she, and Mickey, Mickey was training. Mickey was, had originally started her training at a school in Virginia um, and had heard about us and had reached out. And I had heard a couple people mention at the time she was known as Alexis Lurie. Right. Um, and I had, and we were, we had had like a couple girls training um, and someone had reached out and like, Hey, this, this girl, Alexis Lurie, she's from Virginia. So she's not far. She's got a little bit of training under her and she had just started shows and she really just wanted to get herself out. So she came up and she always credits me with, because I, and I, and she started working at our school and then with our girls, and then she would just ask me like, Hey, can I come up and train? Like, so I can get in the ring with these girls more. I feel like I'm getting a little more advanced training with your girls than I am where I'm at. And then like, I helped her like introduced her to like uh, Bill after and all at pro wrestling illustrated and kind of helped her get her first like national recognition in the magazines, you know, and she always, you know, credits me with that. So I kind of like adopted her. Yeah. She had a little bit of training, but she just kind of felt like the training we were given was a little more advanced and a little more structured um, so she kind of migrated to us and I kind of adopted her, like, I guess a little bit into her training, you know, so, um, she always gives me credit, you know, which I appreciate, like she'll always credit me with it, but I didn't technically get her started, but I kind of adopted her, you well, know, yeah. a couple months into her training. Right. But it is so cool. You had a hand in, in helping all of them, you know, get on the road to, to where they ended up being. And Mickey's another one who never forgot where she came from, like you said, yeah, never had you and she'd come back and done plenty of, of MCW appearances and, and came back just a few years ago. Right. And was, you know, held your women's championship, which yeah, she always does. And she'll be coming yep. back to help us out soon. We got her on some stuff coming up. Well, that's great. But I mean, so. how, how great is that for her to come back and be your women's champion and work with the younger girls that you're bringing in? I mean, that's just, you know, invaluable. Experience. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. It's invaluable. And it, and it, um, that's all I've ever asked for as like a promoter and a guy that's helped people get starting um, is that just, just remember, you know what I mean? And, and all of these people that we're talking about have always remembered and they've never hesitated to help, you know, um, they just never forgotten. me, And that's, that's all I can ask for, you know? Um, 
that's all I can really ask for is that, you know, that they, that everything's reciprocal, you know, like I've helped them out and as they go off and make national names for themselves and they come out and they help my young talent, they help me sell tickets. And more importantly, they say, thank you, you know, and they just, they remember. And that's, that's, that's the really cool part, so, you know, so for me, so to me, I never, I never, I never, you know, wrestled at WrestleMania or, you know, had a contract with WWE, but hearing Lita getting inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame and I'm the first person that comes to her mind to personally thank at her Hall of Fame induction, to me, that was like, that was like my WrestleMania moment. Like that was a cool, you know. Absolutely. Cool Absolutely. I mean, let's, let's be honest. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, you could have made an, if you had stuck with it, I'm sure you could have na- made more of a name for yourself eventually, maybe on the, as a wrestler, but that was not your, I mean, your calling was to eventually, you know, to be a promoter, to, to be, uh, to, to run the school and, and to build, to build stars. And I, and I, you know, RJ and I, Bruiser, you know, we had talked about that in the past as well. Like he realized, and I know he was sort of a prodigy, prodigy. like he could have maybe become, a national star, but he had some demons he had to deal with. Um, and that kind of derailed things, but he realized yeah. he could still contribute to the business and his, 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 uh, fate was not to necessarily be of the world champion or to be on Monday night raw or ring of honor wrestling or whatever, but it was to make the stars to, to be on those shows. So, yeah, man, I mean, you've had, you've had an incredible, uh, and that's why I said in the intro, like you may not be a household name, but you're certainly, you've left a mark on, on the business. And um, yeah, I mean, hearing, you know, for me, a guy who's known you for so long to hear Amy Lita mention you the first name in her uh, hall of fame speech. I mean, that just blew me away, you know, like, wow, I know that dude, you know? So that's- yeah, yeah. And, and that's, and that, that, I think that's part of it, it, it I guess contributed to like our, our success as MCW. I think the one of the, the things you know, one of the problems I think with people in wrestling um, is dealing with that's that's a problem with a lot of people in wrestling or can become a problem is your ego. Right. Um, you hear it talked about a lot. And um, being able to put your ego in check and realize where your role is and what your role is in the business is important to be successful. Um, and I, real, I realized that I think a long time ago, like you were saying, like, you know what? my role is here. You know, when I kind of, I was at a point where I was, I was also pushing 30 years old. So I was getting a little bit older. I was wrestling. I had had several concussions and that was before all the information broke. That was seven or eight years before like Dr. Atu had uh, discovered all this information about concussions. And I, but I had had six or seven and I was kind of starting to think like, I think there's something more to these concussions. Um, so I was kind of having this battle within myself. Like I'm getting older, I'm getting, you know, I've had a couple injuries, but I had also started training people and several of them had started making it. So it was kind of like, I was like, you know what? I think this is my lane that I need to be in. You know, I think this is the lane where I belong, not, you know, performing and not doing it. I think I feel like I have something to offer here. Absolutely. And that's kind of what transitioned for me. And I got comfortable and was able to put my ego aside and go, yeah, I don't need a, I don't need to be ring of honor world champion or WWE champion. Like I could, this is my role and this is my lane and I can contribute to the business and be a major part of it. Absolutely. Even if it's a major part of it, that's in the background, kind of like the wizard of Oz. 
Yeah, but, <laughs> like the man behind the curtain. <laughs> that's right. That's why, like, I, again, like I said, you, you know, you're probably not going to ever be a household name, but you know what you've contributed and the, the people who know, know. And uh, right. you can't. And that's what matters. And that's what matters, 100%. All right, we're going to take our second break, and we'll be back with more with Dan McDevitt right after this. Want to hear post-match interviews from tonight's competitors? Want to see exclusive brand new matches? Want to learn about breaking news before anyone else? Week by Week is the perfect companion to everything that happens on ROH TV. It premieres every single Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern on the official ROH YouTube page. That's youtube.com slash ring of honor. Stay informed on the best wrestling on the planet. I'll see you there. All right, we are back with the ROH Strong Podcast with MCW promoter, co-owner, uh, Dan McDevitt. Let's talk about, you know, we, we, we dropped a lot of big names uh, so far on this show, but let, let's talk about some more big names that have come through MCW. I'm talking about people like Ric Flair, Shawn Michaels, Sting, Goldberg, Chris Jericho. All of these people have appeared, not necessarily uh, to wrestle. I don't think any of them actually wrestled, but to come in, do appearances, get in the ring, maybe cut a promo. Um, talk to me about sort of the business model with that, because I want to, I want to get your thinking as an independent promoter, obviously not every independent promoter can afford to bring in these types of stars. They have pretty high price tags. Um, So for you to bring them in, I think you've told me this, like you've brought these guys in and always still made, made money. So like, just, you know, maybe pull back the curtain a little bit. How can you afford to bring in like these types of talents uh, for an indie promotion? So, it, I mean, it really, it's my, one of the things my partner's really good at, and we have help from a lot of people in the autograph industry, like talking about like baseball, football, um, you know, having major face, uh, football and baseball stars do signing in it. And it honestly all comes down to what you have to charge and what the market can bring um, for that level of stars. Like you said, when you're talking like Shawn Michaels, Ric Flair, Chris Jericho, Batista um, did a signing for us before he, he was still a huge star, main event WWE guy, but it was before, um, you know, his breakthrough to Hollywood. Basically what it comes down to is because most of these guys um, in the autograph world, there's two ways it's done. Sometimes people, depending on the star, you have to guarantee them. You either have to guarantee them a flat rate or they get a percentage of autographs but you still have to guarantee them that they're going to make so much money. So like, it, it, it's kind of like, even though it's two different ways, it's basically at the end of the day as a promoter, I'm signing a contract. Most of the times it's with a law firm because most of these bigger names, your Sting, Shawn Michaels, they have attorneys. Everything's done through attorneys and contracts. It's not like just a handshake. Um, so you have to guarantee them. So what it also comes down to is, you know, from doing this for so many years <laughs> about how many people you can get through a line in a certain amount of time. Um, so once you have their guarantee of what you have to pay them, which many, you know, is tens of thousands on, on many of them, then you kind of break down, okay, well, this is how many people we can get through a signing. And depending upon what time it's usually two or three hours is what you can usually get out of them. But either or, you know roughly how many people you can get through. Then then it's just doing the math backwards. 
-hmm. and going, okay, well, this is what we have to charge for this, for an autograph package in order to make this. And we have to get this many people through the line in order to do that. Um, we've always been of the belief and it's always really worked out for us um, is <clears throat> if we can have them pay for themselves when you, when you're talking a star that's 10, 20, $30,000 to bring in. Okay. If we can make that $30,000 back on the signing, <clears throat> but in order for people to come in, we'd always kind of put it together and structure it where like you had to come to the show because you would have people that you have you do have some autograph collectors that are like hey I only want and there might be people listening to this podcast so maybe they can have an understanding of why companies like ours have to do it this way um where we would say okay if you know that we would have people that say hey you know sting is signing autographs you know before the show we don't want to buy a ticket to the show we don't want to watch the show we just want to get like a belt and autograph and we would say no you have to buy a ticket to the show in order to get into the signing right because in just about every case we were just trying now not just say a 25 or 30 thousand dollar price tag but a lot of these guys that have attorneys and are represented by law firms most of the time just about every time there's two first class airline tickets that have to be purchased there's two hotels because usually a lawyer from the law firm is coming with the talent to deal with all the business aspect of it. Then you have to, you know, a rental car, you have to have a driver for both people. So in incidentals, just to get in there might be an extra 3000. So a $30,000 signing might actually be like $33,000 after you get first class airline tickets, hotels and paying them, you know, for, for that. So, what we would look at to do is say, okay, we, we structure this based on how many people we can get through the line in three hours and what we're paying them. If we can make back the money that we spent on them on the signing and just pay them off, then, but then we sold 1400 tickets to the show and we sold an extra 500 tickets. Well, then that's the money that we're making. Right. Then that's our profit. So like, it's kind of like the movie theaters. Like I didn't used to know how the movie theater business worked, but then, I learned from people in the movie, like you, when you go to movies and there's new, new release movies, like the movie studios get all of that money. The movie theaters make their money off the $10 a bucket popcorn and $9, a, you know, a drink soda, you know? So it was kind of like that theory, like, Hey, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, pay for them that let them pay for themselves. But you know, in order for us to make something off taking all of this risk, we're going to take this risk of this $30,000 risk. We need to make something off of it and we're going to make it off the ticket sales. So that's when, when you'd have people complain, well, I don't want to go to the show. Well, you know what? That 20 bucks that you're buying a ticket for the show, even if you don't come, that's kind of what we're getting out of bringing the star in a caliber of Sting or Chris Jericho or Batista so that you could meet them, get a picture with them and get an autograph. So you're giving us that 20 bucks. Then if you're complaining about the 150 or $200 price tag to get, um, you know, your autograph signed and a picture with them, well, that's because we had to pay that. We had to pay them $30,000. So you're 200 bucks right. is really just going to them. You know what I mean? And it's, it's funny because there's another star we were, and I don't want to say his name. He's a, mega mega star one of the big stars in the business that we were negotiating with and he when we were going back and forth with his attorney and his attorney was like well and we were going over prices we were gonna <coughs> we were going to um have to charge people 
And then they were like, yeah, he's really uncomfortable with you charging fans that much money to get his picture. And it's like, okay, then lower your price from 50000 <laughs> Right. You know what I mean? Like, if you don't want us to have us charge $400 for someone to meet you, then don't charge us $50,000 because based on your price, we're really just trying to pay your $50,000 price tag to, you know what I mean? To come in and nice. sign autographs. Like we're not going to make anything off that. Like we're going to just try to sell more tickets to the show, but we'd be happy not to charge people $400. We never got the deal done and weren't able to do it. But yeah, it was like, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't charge us $50,000 to show up and sign autographs for three hours, but then want us to, you know what, charge 150 bucks and then we lose, you know, $25,000 right off the top. Like, right. how are we supposed to recoup that as a business? So, yeah, that's when you, if you're a, a person that goes to these shows and, and sees those price tags, that's not some, you know, scumbag independent promoter just trying to make a million dollars off the signing. They're usually just trying to cover the cost of that talent and then sell some extra tickets to their show. Exactly. And, and, and possibly bring up, turn on new fans, you know, because independent wrestling is something that a guy, I'm sure every major star that we've had to assign Batista, Chris Jericho, Ric Flair, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Rey Mysterio, they've all probably brought different people that would have never given us a chance that have probably turned them into long-term fans. Absolutely. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure many of our long-term fans that come to our show in Joppa are probably fans that originally even gave us an opportunity because they came to meet, you know, Goldberg or Shawn right. Michaels. And then just was like, wow, this is really a good show. And then just kept coming to the shows. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. There's two benefits to it. That's one of them. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Yeah. Is, is bringing people to the show who wouldn't normally buy a ticket. They see the products good and they're like, man, I'm going to come back. You know, I came because Shawn Michaels is here, but I'm going to come back next month because I just like this was a great show, right? It's a yeah. great show. And I think the other thing too is you've garnered such um, a good reputation and so much goodwill with these big stars that come in. They come in. It's so professional. It's so well run. Um, you know, they get paid. They get do what they have to do, and it's all a positive experience. And then they can put the word out to other people in the business who are considering doing something, you know, MCW just then gets this reputation as, yeah, go there and they'll take care of you. And it's a first class organization. And so, a, a perfect example of that is Shawn Michaels, who doesn't do just everybody. Right. <clears throat> but Kevin Nash and Scott Hall had said such good things about us to him. He agreed to take our sign when he did it with us. I um, mean, his attorney told us that and he just, Shawn just doesn't do anybody. Even though he's comes with a hefty price tag, he doesn't do just signings for anybody. And that was directly told us. He said he wouldn't have done it, but Kevin Nash and Scott Hall had such good things to say about MCW that he was like, okay. Um, when we had originally reached out and we were put in touch with his attorney, he was like, okay. You know, he said, I'll, I'll do it. Kevin and Scott just, they, they rave about MCW and how professional they are. So, yeah, that's a good, that's an example of how that kind of happened. Right. Oh, I, I remember too, uh, several years back, you had Kevin Nash advertise for a show and, you know, he was on all the posters and all the advertising was out there. And then he had a family situation where he couldn't make it. And I believe it was the day of the show where you had to, you're scram like, okay, Kevin Nash is not going to be there. You know, you've got to bring in somebody. And again, this just goes to show about the relationships that you've made in the business and the reputation that MCW has. 
you called up Mick Foley, right? Like that afternoon and said, well, you're uh, leaving something out. Oh, what did I leave that out? That show was, that that show was the day after Christmas. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so <laughs> I found out on Christmas day that Kevin Nash wasn't getting on a plane the next day <laughs> and had to call people on Christmas. That's that, like, yeah, that's a big part to leave out. Yes. It was, I have Christmas. a kid at the time. I have a four or five year old daughter that it's like a, you know, Christmas is such a huge day and I'm completely panicked out of my mind because it's the day after Christmas. And that's always a really good time as an independent promoter. One of the best times over the years we found to run wrestling shows is the week between Christmas and New Year's because people are off work. A lot of people take their vacations at that time. A lot of people schedule their vacations just so they can have that whole week off. Schools are closed. People have money. People are tired of hanging around their family (laughs) and they're burnt out of the Christmas stuff because it's been days leading up to it. Christmas Eve, all the Christmas stuff. They want to get out of the house and do something and they got money, you know? So um, that's always been like one of our most successful shows of the year is hitting right in that time. Now in the last couple of years, we stopped doing it because like the Baltimore arena became a spot for WWE to run. They were running that like Saturday in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And it was like, that's the date they started scheduling. So we started kind of backing off of it. Um, But yeah, so that I, that happened. We were notified like midday Christmas. And then, so I'm calling people on Christmas day, feeling like a total jerk. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like a total jerk, but what am I going to do? There's six or 700 tickets sold. Kevin Nash hadn't, I don't think we had had him in years. I don't think we had had him in a long time. So but so I was like, not only do I need a big name, I need someone that we haven't had recently right. or hasn't been around in a long time. And I called Mick and I had had a good relationship with Mick over the years, not just um, from promoting, but I wrestled him a bunch on the indies when he was Cactus Jack. Because we both wrestled for, you know, maybe rest in peace, Dick Karakoff, a promoter from Western Maryland who Mick, when he, he passed away a couple months ago, Mick actually had a lot to nice things to say about him um he had a lot of nice things to say about him because dick dick uh dick helped mick foley get his start when he was getting going so i had had like dick had paired me with him and i had wrestled a bunch so because of that i had gotten to know him and i knew he was in new york um i knew he was i knew he was and i knew he was living in new york so i knew a couple things i knew (laughs) I needed to get a hold of somebody, but I needed to get a hold of somebody that could drive because a last-minute plane ticket on Christmas Day or the day after Christmas <laughs> is going to be astronomical. If I have to purchase it within, you know what I mean? A $200 plane ticket's going to be $2,500. Right. Because the airlines got you pinched and it's the busiest travel days of the year. So I'm like, not only do I got to get somebody, but I got to get someone within driving distance. And they got to be of an equal name to Kevin Nash that I haven't had in a long time so that I don't have 500 to 700 people wanting refunds tomorrow. <laughs> and sure enough, I, you know, and, and everybody that knows Mick Foley because he talks about it knows how important Christmas is to Mick Foley. No one loves Christmas right? more than Mick Foley. No one loves Christmas more than Mick Foley. If you're a wrestling fan, you know this. He starts, he starts talking about Christmas in July and won't stop talking about it until a week after Christmas. So 
I knowing this, I'm like, I'm, and he's like, oh, he's even like, oh, Dan, you're asking me to come on, you know, to, you know, this is Christmas time. And I'm like, I just threw myself at his mercy. And he said, what happened? And I told him, and I think he called Kevin Nash and Kevin Nash was having a family issue that was public um, with his son. Right. And, um, and, and he knew, and he, called Kevin and he talked to Kevin Nash and then he called me back and said, I'll be there. And I was like, Oh my God. And he was, he's just a good dude. And he was like, man, you're killing me. My wife's, you know what I mean? Not happy. Like this is our time where we just kind of spend time together and I don't take any dates and I don't take any signings and it's just a family, but he dropped everything the next day and he got in his car and he drove down and the people were ecstatic. They were more than happy with him as a replacement but a relationship and, a, you know, respect and appreciation that, you know, I guess I've earned. And he, he's, and on top of him being a good person, yeah, he bailed me out the day after Christmas. Yeah, that's an amazing so. story. That's amazing. And like you said, that, that's a, it's really a testament to two things. One, obviously, Mick is a tremendous human being. But the relationship, again, that you've, that you've formed with these guys and, um, you know, the personal relationship, but also them knowing, too, that, you know, what MCW represents and, and how – uh, legitimate and professional it is. And, and, you know, Mick also thinking like, you know, those fans paid to see Kevin Nash and, and like, uh, you know, they're going to be disappointed. Not only is it going to be yeah. bad for MCW business, but you know, like he doesn't want to disappoint the, you know, the people. And um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. You and there was, there was added stress. There was added stress on that show amongst everything else amongst it being Christmas because the situation with Kevin Nash and his son was public. It had made like TMZ. Yeah. So not only was a lot of times as a wrestling promoter, um, this kind of stuff is done under the cover, like under the cover of darkness, so to speak, <laughs> where like maybe something's happened internally with an emergency. And I, I haven't made the announcement. I ha I'm not announcing it publicly to the fans, but I'm dealing with it. Like they don't know that I'm freaking missing my daughter's Christmas, my five-year-old daughter's Christmas, because I'm frantically on the phone, sending emails, trying to figure this out. So I'm doing it without a lot of extra pressure. But now there's the added pressure of this is on TMZ. So our social media and everything's getting blown up of like, hey, this incident with Kevin Nash and his son, he's not going to be there tomorrow, is he? You know, tell us now so we can get a refund. So we were like getting refund requests and people hitting our social media and sending emails like hey is kevin nash isn't gonna be there it's like oh my god this like kind of made a national news story it made a national news story so i'm trying to solve it and it's like i just i just kind of want to get on social media and scream like i'm working on it <laughs> <laughs> like just it's christmas day give me a minute i'm trying to figure this out so it was able and it was like normally i would have just made the announcement that night but we ended up once once i got it worked out he actually called me back it was Christmas night. And he said, I'll call you first thing in the morning. He held true to his word. He called me at like eight o'clock in the morning <coughs> the next day and said, okay, I talked with my wife last night. She's okay. You know, I'm, but I'm going to have to work to, you know, I'm going to have to get out of the doghouse. but under the circumstances, you want me to do it. So I was able to throw it up on the website and then people got excited. And I announced it that morning, Hey, McFoley's coming. Kevin Nash isn't going to be here. But yeah, it was that added pressure of that like national news story that people started, the fans started hounding me before I could even 
kind of get everything together and announce it to them that, hey, this has happened, but this is going to be there. So, yeah, that was probably – that would rank as probably one of <clears> – with <throat> you, all the circumstances rank as one of my most stressful days as a wrestling promoter. I can <laughs> that, that But, man, uh, thanks to Mick, a happy ending. A happy ending. Uh, yeah. And Christmas was saved. Christmas was saved. Yeah. By Mick yeah. Yeah. So it's no, it's not just a gimmick. That's right. They'll save, they'll save your Christmas too. That's right. <laughs> All right. We're going to take, uh, we're going to squeeze another break in here and we'll be back with Dan with more. Let's roll America. Roll up your sleeves to give blood. You can help save lives of patients that depend on blood every single day. Ring of Honor Wrestling has once again teamed up with the American Red Cross for Sinclair Cares Roll Up Your Sleeves. Make an appointment today to donate blood. Your donation will help save lives and impact countless more. Go to SinclairCares.com to schedule your appointment now. All right, back on the ROH Strong Podcast, Dan McDevitt, the MCW pro wrestling promoter and co-owner telling us some great stories and uh we've got some more i mean we just scratched the surface on some of these stories. i could i mean we could do a six hour podcast I mean, we won't, right right we won't but i want to bore the people to death but. no these i don't think anyone's bored with these stories but um i just want to touch briefly because we've talked about you uh obviously i know i know dan that you were a huge huge wrestling fan as a kid growing up um then you wanted to get into the business how old were you when you started training? You were you still in high school? I had just graduated just high graduated. school, literally, <clears throat> literally months out of high school. Um, my grandfather had just passed away a couple months before that, and for the four kids, it was four of us in the family. He had left. I mean, it was a small amount of money, but this is early nineteen nineties, like four or five thousand dollars, like specifically for like college. Um, and my parents were just. God love them. They didn't want me to do pro wrestling. You know what I mean? They wanted my brother had been to college. My sisters were all like two or three years apart. And they were like, you know, your grandfather left this money to kind of help you guys get, you know, go towards your college. And I just begged them, <laughs> please let me use this to go to pro wrestling school. I don't want to go to college. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and um, even, you know, we, remember graduation night I remember my high school graduation night I got into an argument with my parents and like stormed out of dinner at Double T Diner um afterwards because I was begging them please let me use money pop pop left us to go to wrestling school because Monster Factory in New Jersey there wasn't anything in the area um and I was gonna drive up to New Jersey I had just gotten a car and I was like look it's three thousand dollars I can pay it and I'll use the other money to go towards travel and it was like all summer and then what happened was i stepped on stumbled on an independent show in maryland at the end of summer right after i graduated and uh they went at that they were advertising hey the monster again this is pre-internet pre-social media so this information wasn't that accessible it wasn't like i could just go on facebook and see hey there's a monster factory opening up in Baltimore, but they announced at the show, hey, Dwayne Gill, people remember as Gilberg, you know, Gilberg, Dwayne Gill. Dwayne Gill is opening up a Baltimore version of the Monster Factory next month in Glen Burnie, Maryland. And I was like, oh, my, this is the sign. This is the sign. And I went, um, 
I went home and then begged my parents again. And finally they gave in and said, okay, I think they were just tired. Like they realized like, I'm not going to college. Please let me do this. And and they did. And they let me use the money to go towards the, uh, and train it at Gilbert or at the monster factory, which was, you know, run by Dwayne Gill. Um, however, Dwayne at the time was on the road a lot. They were doing lots of house shows and, he was doing the executioner stuff, but I was lucky and fortunate enough at the time that Axel Rotten had just come back from <coughs> USWA. He was down in the Memphis territory and he was kind of like took a liking to me and I ended up going under his wing and he kind of took me under his wing and trained me and broke me in and really kind of got me my start in wrestling. Well, let's talk about that uh, a little bit. Training with Axel. Um mm-hmm. And I know you and I have had these conversations about what training was like. It's a little bit different than, uh, than how people train today. Uh, <laughs> not even, it's not even close. <laughs> yeah. I was being, um, yeah, I was, I was being sarcastic. Was, yeah. yeah tell, tell us what's so, that. But, I, but, I, but I don't, I, so, so number one, so Axel, um, the training was different. All the horror stories that you hear about guys just getting their teeth kicked in and getting beat up and beat unmercifully. Um, punched in the face for real um, <clears throat> and just pumbled and stretched. Um, they, they're true. And that's, and Axel is from that school. There was also that <clears throat> um, I was uh, like, Axel was coming down and he was practicing moves at the time. He was coming back from USWA. There was this company that had been up and running in Philadelphia called ECW at the time, Eastern championship wrestling. Right later becoming extreme championship wrestling. Um, and Paul, I think Paul had, Paul Heyman had just, <coughs> either Paul had just taken over for Eddie Gilbert or maybe Eddie Gilbert was still booking it at the time. And maybe that was the connection of how Axel knew about it because maybe he knew Gil- Eddie Gilbert from Memphis. But regardless, he was going to start going up there. So he wanted to work on new stuff. But at the time, there wasn't a lot of students that could <laughs> take bumps. So Axel... Um, and Ian Rotten, at the time, I didn't realize that I'm like, oh, these guys must like me. But really, they were just beating me up <laughs> to practice themselves and teaching me, but like teaching me very forcefully how to learn stuff so they could practice their moves. And I was just a beat a, a dummy. But I think one of the things, too, was wrestling was so different and so not exposed at the time. Again, this might be hard for people that are watching or listening to this podcast and we're talking so openly behind the curtain. But I went in at 18 years old in 1991. I signed up at wrestling school and 95% of me believed it was 100% real. There was only a small smidgen of me that was unsure that thought, maybe this isn't real. I believed it, man. I believed it because the sheets were, I was never a sheet reader. I never read Meltzer. There was no internet. The only thing, you know what I mean? And their yeah. the magazines didn't talk behind the scenes. Never. So like you, you didn't, this, this information wasn't accessible and I loved wrestling so much. I wanted to believe it. So you weren't going to convince me otherwise. So that, that's one of the things when people say like, how did you survive getting beat, like beat up and on and going through that era of wrestling where you were just like, I mean, you know, I had an orbital bone broken in training. I had my ribs cracked in training. I broke my collarbone in training Um, over the course of like the first year because I was getting it because I believed it was real. So I expected it. (laughs) You know, when I was doing it, it wasn't like now where you hear and it's talked 
people talk about how much of a work wrestling is, so they don't even begin to understand how difficult it really is. Right. This is, and it's interesting when you'll see pro football players or people that were in MMA talk about like, oh my God, this is like incredibly difficult. Yep. That, you know, when you have pro athletes say, oh my God, this is one of the hardest things I've ever done. That should be an indication for average people of how difficult it actually is. So when you add on to it, that not only is it just difficult anyway, the ring hurts, it's made of steel and wood, but then you have people that are intentionally trying to hurt you when they're training that are, you know, 350 pound guys. Um, yeah, they were kicking the crap out of me, but I believed it. So I didn't care because I believed it was, I, I figured that's what I should be going through. It well, wasn't like great, I was sitting there going, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a great point because you weren't some wide-eyed kid just out of high school going, oh, I'm going to train to be a pro wrestler and, and having some idea of, you know, like you said, that, that, that it's, it's, it's a work. It's a work it's, or whatever. Yeah, it's right, obviously right. going to be physically demanding, but, you know, we're working together in the ring and we're not trying to, like, really beat each other up. So you didn't have that preconceived notion. So no. when you went in there and started getting beat up, you thought it was a, that's actually good that I guess that you had that belief because it would have been certainly a shock to your system when you go yeah, in there. Expecting yeah. to, let's learn some uh, forward rolls and, and, you know, let's take up, here's a back, here's how you do a back bump as compared to Axel Rotten getting in there. And like you said, literally beating you up, punching you in the face. I mean, was yeah, there a moment though when, when you're like, man, I mean, you're, you're a big guy, Dan, I know you're, you're a big guy and certainly you can, you know, you, you could take it. Right. But was there ever a moment where you're just like, Jesus, I don't know if I really want to be like punched in the face. I don't know if this no, is. No, no, no. But I, and that's why I said, I think, um, I, I think, um, and that's maybe uh, there's a combination of a couple things where maybe Axel took a liking to, and I think I amused him my inability to understand what wrestling actually was and thinking it was so real where like, I, I remember he would, and, and if anybody, unfortunately Axel passed away with a reputation that he had, that he had forged for himself, but that wasn't the Axel that you knew or I knew. Right. Um, the Axel Rodden that I knew in the early 1990s was just an amazing guy with a, a personality that was infectious um, a sense of humor that was infectious. And, um, like, I remember him laughing at me, but at the time I didn't understand, but like, because I remember, I distinctly remember going over like clotheslines and stuff. And he's talking about me taking bumps and this and that. And I'm going like, no, I'm, I'm, why would I go down when you clothesline <laughs> me? You know what I mean? And he's like, what do you mean? And he's like laughing. I remember, and I remember him like looking around and I'm like, well, you got, I'll duck it. And he'd say, Oh, you will. What, what are you going to do? And I'd say, Oh, I'll duck it and I'll put you in a crucifix. You know <laughs> what I mean? Cause I'm faster than you. And I remember him like laughing and I'm sure at the time looking back, like he was thinking to himself, like this kid's a freaking idiot, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I'm talking as if it's a hundred percent shoot. And I'm like, no, seriously, you're not going to hit me because you're a lot slower than me. And I'm going to duck under the clothesline and catch you in a crucifix. So he'd go, okay, try, but I'm going to try to catch you. And then he'd obviously throw in the clothesline slow so I could crucifix him. Right. And then I'm getting up like, see, I got you. I got you. You know what I mean? And he's going, damn, you got me. You're right. You know, so there, so it was a weird relationship of him, like beating me up and him seeing like, I'm not making this kid quick. I, I've like kicked him in the face and swelled his eyes shut. 
you know, I've cracked his orbital bone, I've cracked his ribs, and he keeps showing back up every single day, but he's also kind of amusing me. Yeah. And then we kind of (laughs) created that bond in a weird way. And when I look back at it, we, we, God go, God, I was an idiot, but I wasn't an idiot. I was a kid that loves wrestling so much. He would die for it and just wanted to be part of it so bad that it didn't matter if you broke my arm or broke my leg. I was going to come back as soon as it was over because I just wanted to be a part of wrestling so bad. And I assumed that's what it was because I didn't know any better at the time. Right. Well, obviously being a promoter, a lot less hazardous to your health. Yeah, much less. <laughs> much less. Much less. So maybe not financially, but physically. That's, <laughs> right. Well, you mentioned the ECW connection that Axel had, and I know you you got a chance to work. I mean, you worked semi regularly, right? As as in a, in a I did. As <coughs> I you did, were doing yeah. the corporal punishment gimmick at that point, mm-hmm. right? I was as corporal punishment. Yeah. Right. That was um. I guess, uh, when did I, it was around the time I started MCW, so it was probably like 97. <laughs> um, and again, that was at a time, if people remember that area, if you were a fan, what a special time. I know wrestling is really hot now, but that was like a special time. Again, like the internet was just coming around. There still wasn't social media, but there was this buzz about this company, ECW. And at that time, Axel had started to get in. He had started doing like barbed wire bat matches. Right. <laughs> Taipei glass match the glass matches with him and Ian. He was starting to get a lot of worldwide recognition because of that. But so many people were trying to get in. You know what I mean? It was um you had at the time you had WWF, you had ECW. Ring of Honor didn't exist then. Right. But you know, um it, so many people were trying to get in, but I was like Axel's young guy, and I went up there for a year, probably would put up rings. Um, and, you know, not expect anything. And Spike Dudley and Danny Doring and Chris Chetty and Nova and guys like that were all doing the same thing. And, yeah, I was lucky enough to get some opportunities to do a lot of open and match stuff. But I got to work with a lot of different people, you know, <clears throat> Tommy Dreamer and Luis Bacoli and Taz and Sabu, you know, and Rob Van Dam and Balls Mahoney and um, New Jack I worked with. So I was able to get probably a year, a year and a half I did. And then around that time is when I started, I had opened the bone breakers training center and I had started to get an MCW done. And we were, we were like kind of young. We made a lot of mistakes when we started. One of the mistakes was I just was, you know, instead of getting, trying to do one area, I was trying to run like shows in Salisbury shows in Maryland. So what happened was kind of at that time, I was starting to do shows. ECW was starting to run regularly. So I couldn't, I was, it it was one of those things. And I understood it, like the structure of how things work, like for me to continue and probably end up with a spot in ECW, I needed to be there all the time and be there every weekend and be consistent um, and showing up and doing it. Because if you don't, it's out of sight, out of mind, you know, and I started doing MCW shows. So I would, you know, some weekends I couldn't go. Obviously, Axel was going because he was a full-time talent <clears throat> on the shows at that point. He was he was pretty much a full-time guy. So, but probably a year, year and a half, I did matches, opening matches and stuff like that. Um, and had a lot of opportunities and got to, you know, work with people. Um, you know, so it was a really good experience. But yeah, I worked as Corporal Punishment at that time. Well, you mentioned some of those uh, ECW legends that you were able to get in the ring with, which is very cool. But you also got 
to do some WWF enhancement matches and, yeah. and work, with some, work with some big names. I'm going to talk about a big angle that you were involved in in a second, but you got to work with some big WWF names, including a guy named The Rock. Uh, and yeah. I know that you had a, a unique experience of working with The Rock. Can you, can you tell that story? Yeah, so, and again, for that, how those opportunities, and like give a, a shout out because he has a Ring of Honor connection is Jim Cornette. Um, at the, I had gotten to know Jim Cornette on the Indies, and um, at the time he was booking enhancement talent. So I was, you know, working the Indies, doing the stuff. Plus, I think, I think kind of at the time, and again, you don't think of it like at the time I was trying to do stuff with, with – um, it was really looked down upon at that time. Like ECW really was a rebel promotion. So there was things I did wrong that probably impacted my ability to end up with an opportunity in ECW, like a full-time opportunity. <clears throat> and one of these things you don't think about it because you're just a guy, a journey, big guy hustling, trying to get a break. But at the time, I think it was probably looked down upon that. I was a guy going up to WWE doing jobs. Yeah, but trying to get a you see what I'm saying, even though in WWE doing jobs, I was and I always just wrestled under regular names. It was when I'd go do jobs there, like I would be like Jeff Jones or like I would be Brian Knighton, which is Axel's real name. Like and everybody, like I would be my friend's real name, like when I would go to a job just to like make them laugh. You know what I mean? Like I wrestle under their real names. So even though like you're doing jobs and you're doing an extra, but as I'm wrestling on the indies as a character. I still think at the time, like ECW was, and I didn't see it that way at the time, but the guys on top, like Taz and the bubble rays and guys like that, it probably looked down on me and it, I probably shouldn't have been, I probably shouldn't have been trying to do both. I think it may be reflected bad upon me, you know, mm -hmm. um, that I was, yeah, and I get their thing. They're trying to be a credible promotion. And here's this kid that's doing jobs on getting squashed by WWE guys in three minutes. Right. You know, on their television. But yeah, I um, I wrestled The Rock in a six-man. He was the nation of domination. Um, and uh, it was The Rock, Mark Henry, and D'Lo Brown against me and two other guys. And I ended up um, I ended up with what was my fifth concussion. As, was, this from the rock the rock, was this from The Rock Bottom? It was from The Rock Bottom, yeah. And, to, to, you know, it was back if, when, remember when Rock, at that time, he was Intercontinental Champion at the time um he was intercontinental champion and he used to do the rock bottom where he he'd pick you up he'd put his arm pick you up but he'd throw his feet in and he'd kick your feet back yeah like he'd kick your feet through so number one he was becoming he wasn't obviously the star that he is now or the star that he became but it, that's that point where the rock started to stand out as the intercontinental champion and you started to realize he was going to become a big star. So people were chanting the Rocky sucks. He had taken over from Farouk as the nation of domination leader. So I was, I was nervous because I knew he was a big star and I wanted to do a good job for him. So it was a combination of me overexerting myself, jumping and him kicking his feet <laughs> through that. I basically, he lawn darted me. <laughs> and he, my feet went straight up in the air when he came down on the rock bottom. It was on the top of my head. And then my knees came down and smashed me in my face. So I not only had a concussion, but had ended up with like two black eyes, oh. my face swollen up. I was a mess. It looked like I had been in a car accident without an airbag. Um, did, did the lights go out for you at that point? 
Yeah, <clears throat> out, and it was, <clears throat> they were in and out. <clears throat> I remember it being in and out. And then I spent the night at the Philadelphia hospital. Um, but they were in and out. Um, <clears throat> it was one of those things, if you've had concussions, it's like, it's almost like I, I can still think back to it, but it was like a bad dream because it was like in and out. I remember this, and then I remember, like, I, there's a point where I remember Bradshaw, who was John, you know, he was like when the Blackjacks, and I remember like in the back and I remember him standing over me and looking at me and going, kid, kid. And he said, you know what I mean? And I'm, and I'm like, like, don't, you know what I mean? And like things are ringing. And then I remember being in an ambulance, Jesus. you know, in the back of the WWE. And I remember being in the Philadelphia hospital. Then I remember my, my tag part or my, my partner at the time in MCW, who was my tag partner in that six man, one of the like greatest ribs I've ever had pulled on me. Um, you know, he got a much enjoyment of it is I remember like, I remember it being like <clears throat> three in the morning and we're pulling up to a rest stop. Um, coming back from Philadelphia to Baltimore. And, uh, I remember he was like, come on, we got to get something to eat. You need something to eat. And I remember being like all rattled and I'm in my knee pads and boots and a singlet because <laughs> that's what I had wore <laughs> doing jobs. And he's and <clears throat> Mark Trader and he's going, I'm going, are you sure this is right? And he's going, yeah, don't, there's nobody in here. Nobody will notice. And then I remember like kind of <laughs> waking up almost and I'm sitting and I remember like people staring at me and I don't even realize because I'm out of it. I'm still coming out of this concussion, but I'm sitting there in a singlet with knee pads and wrestling boots on at like 3.30 in the morning <laughs> eating at a Roy Rogers at a rest stop <laughs> on 95. And he's just loving it. And thank God this was like pre-cell phone days where everybody had videos because I'm sure I would have been all over YouTube because I'm just sitting there eating my like cheeseburger and French fries. And I remember looking at him and he's just hysterically like tears coming out of his eyes. He can't even keep his face. He's just like, this is all for his enjoyment because he's the only one. And he's, of course, dressed in like jeans and he's just looking at me like I'm his special kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I'm just sitting there in a singlet, you know, a grown man in a singlet and boots, just eating and looking at him going, Hey man, is something, is this, are you sure people aren't looking at me? And he's going, nobody's, nobody's paying attention. Uh, just keep eating. Yeah. So now, uh, did the rock realize that you were like knocked loopy? Did he <laughs> say anything later or he, so he did, he actually ended up calling me. Um, he actually ended up calling me like a, a week later. Like that's this guy was such a genuine guy that he got a hold of me. I guess he felt bad, you know. Which is why I've always, when I say about him, man, that's a guy that's like he deserves everything he got. He not only called me um, <clears throat> and reached out to me and called me afterwards um, to check on me to make sure I was okay, but then WWE was like two months later at the Baltimore Arena. And um, I went down to do extra work and like he saw me and immediately came over. And at the time he gave me, they had just put out these red shirts that say Rocky sucks. And it looked like blood letters, like it was written in paint. And he like gave me these shirts and was like, you know, really just a kind person. And was like, I could tell it was like, you know, my God, like this, this guy's such a major star. I was just an enhancement guy, but you could tell like he genuinely had compassion and caring that he had hurt me and I had spent in the hospital. And that's, that's something that's always stuck with me when I see him, 
when I see him doing stuff, you know, cause you know, there's always questions of like, are these big Hollywood stars? Are they fake? Are they real? Sure. Like anytime I see him and see him doing stuff for charity, like, and or people say, what are the, you know, people not in wrestling, although it seems like he's a guy that's always asking about what about that Dwayne, the rock Johnson. I'm like, that dude's real. Like everything you see him doing for charity, like he's just a kind person that freaking deserves everything he got, you know? Cause yeah, he didn't have to. I was just, I was nobody important. I was just an enhancement talent, but you could tell he was genuinely concerned and genuinely felt bad that he had, you know, hurt me, you know, or that I got hurt in the match, not he hurt me because we're both in there together, but right, right. he was genuinely concerned that I had got hurt. And um, you could tell it, it, it mattered to him that he wanted to make sure I was okay. Yeah. And like you said, not everybody, um, you know, a guy at his level and right. He, he eventually got, uh, obviously he became a much bigger star, but he was certainly on the rise at that point. And yeah. you know, there are plenty of guys at his level or, you know, maybe even not at his level who, who wouldn't have cared about the enhancement guy and checking on right. him. So, and, and I, my experiences with him, uh, as a member of the media, you know, the chances I've gotten to interview him, and I interviewed him at different stages of his career. I interviewed him the first time when he was in the Nation of Domination and was lucky enough to interview him, you know, later when I worked at the Baltimore Sun uh, when he was uh, a huge star. I'm talking about like 1999, 2000, when he's the biggest star in the business. And then was fortunate enough to interview him later when he started doing movies and he would do uh, media appearances in different cities. And, you know, I interviewed him for... Um, uh, Gridiron Gang was one of them, and Walking Tall. You know, this was early in his movie career, but still, he's a movie star at this point. And he right. was still—he was still the same guy that he was back that I interviewed when he was just starting in the Nation of Domination. And then, you know, years later, when I worked for WWE, and we brought him in for the uh, the matches with Cena at WrestleMania. Again, you know, just you know, here was a guy backstage. At this point, he's like the biggest movie star in the industry. And, yeah, still, and yeah. still approachable and still the same guy. And, hey, man, how are you doing? You know, like, tell me about you. And, it, yeah, I can't say enough good things. So it doesn't surprise me that he checked on you. And, yeah, anybody who's wondering, like, uh, is he genuine? Like, it almost seems too good to be true. But he actually is. Yeah. He said something to me one time when I interviewed him. And, um, and it was about this kind of thing, about, like, staying humble and stuff like that. And he said something right. to me, which it's going to sound so trite. But he said this, and he's like, I know it sounds trite, he goes, but I believe it. And that's, it's, uh, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. And I was like, wow, yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool coming from Dwayne The Rock Johnson, you know? And like, right. he's applied that to, real, to, to, his, to his life. All right, so let's talk about another guy. If there, was a, if there was a star as big or bigger even than The Rock during, that, during the Attitude Era, it was Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I know you've got a pretty cool story to tell uh, of your interaction with Steve Austin. So you, I'll let you tell that so, one. <laughs> so, yeah, so that the, the night that he, um, the night that was one of, you know, still to this day, I guess, probably one of the top looked at as one of the top like moments in, in wrestling um, because of where it was leading the business <laughs> was the night he um, stunned uh, Vince McMahon in Madison Square Garden for the very first time. Yep. And um, it was leading up to really Steve Austin, Stone Cold breaking through and becoming the mega star that he did. And that was at a time, that was at a time where uh, 
I had that was so that was right in that era where I was going up, <clears throat> going up to ECW, wrestling as corporal punishment, trying to get a break, doing a lot of opening matches, and also doing jobs with WWE. That was right in that so that I guess was ninety six, ninety seven, right in that time period. And um, a guy that I had worked with for a bunch on the Indies, I had worked with him, and he liked me, and um, was just probably. I'd have to say the most talented guy I was ever in the ring with was Chris Candido. Um, he was there. He was working with ECW at the time, but Tammy was in WWE, WWF at the time. She was still there. So he was there. And what happened was um, somebody, one of the agents, one of the top agents asked Chris Candido about who he knew that was trustworthy because this big angle was happening. So they wanted the extras to be the police officers for the McMahon, you know, for the arresting stone cold angle when he did McMahon, but they didn't want, <clears throat> they didn't want to just throw people out there that they didn't know who they were and they didn't trust if they didn't know what they were doing. So, and then there was, you know, two people, there was four, four of us, but they wanted two to be the main two that ones, the ones that were putting the cuffs on Austin and having the most interaction and Candido picked me, and this guy, well, you know, was <clears throat> 15 extras up there. But Candido said, you want, you want Corporal and you want Wild Bill. <clears throat> and we were the two, I guess, main ones that were doing the, that they kind of put everything on. <clears throat> um, because obviously it's live national television. It's the big moment. It needs to look like these they're police officers. Like this can't be flubbed off or, right. you know, it's going to make the whole thing look stupid. It can't look can. It can't all of a sudden appear that it's not what it is. Because so, yeah, so Candido kind of picked me and Wild Bill and we got put in this position and, <clears throat> you know, it was and it's still to this day, 23 years later, shown all the time on video clips. I'll always because, <clears throat> of course, on social media, people always tag me and they tag me and they're like, oh, my God, here it is. And I'm like, yeah, I rested that, you know, SOB. <laughs> like, I, I still run with it. It's my that's my if anything, that's my 15 minutes of fame that I still run with 20 some years later. You know, so well, that was really much, a cool moment. How much interaction did you have? Because I, you know, from working with working at WWE, I know Vince McMahon is very hands-on, especially with a big angle like that. Yeah, was he? Yeah, there? It was which is <clears throat> yes, yeah. He had us in the yeah. Guy had us running over it and over it and over it, <clears throat> and um, talking directly with Vince and Steve Austin. And um, Steve is very, <clears throat> especially like it was funny because <laughs> Steve was Steve was um when we were walking through it early in the day and at that time he was involved with like owen hart yeah because steve had gotten his neck so owen hart and they were they would tape raw and you know they would you know have raw live and have raw tape so that was in the midst of that so like owen was kind of out there and but steve was like really mild <clears throat> but once the camera came on man, you got Steve Austin. Like, he was just, like, you know, dialed it up. Um, so, yeah, it was going over and over in it. But, um, you know, for several hours beforehand. Um, and it was funny because <coughs> I was joking with Candido. And then he was – at the time, it was the N, the NWO was the um, – <coughs> this is something I always joke with the guys when I tell the story. They love it. At the time, the NWO was – you know, battling 
W, you know, WWE and WCW. And I was jokingly that I had like an NWO um, shirt in my bag. And then the joke was like, Hey, what if, what if I arrest Stone Cold? And then I pull off, I pull off my cop shirt. I got an endo. It's live TV, you know? Right. <laughs> so like I was joking with Candido and all throughout the day, but part of it was like, I would obviously never had the, the, the balls to do that. <laughs> But part of it was like joking and making jokes with Candido because I was so freaking nervous, you know. Yeah, I was like sick to my stomach nervous because like you said, Vince was really hands on and he kept saying, you can't screw this up. You can't screw this up. So what I get to is when we got to where we handcuffed him, when we were running through it, he had had like wrist tape and all this stuff on afterwards. So like we got there and I think they had given us different cuffs. So like when we went to cuff him um, and it's happening – I can't get the cuffs on his wrist. And there's a point if you look and I'm cuffing him and he's like, you know, he, he leans back and he yells at me like, we're on live TV. You know what I mean? And I was like, Oh, uh," you know, (laughs) like just, I slam him on him. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? And tighten them real tight, you know? So yeah, that was that intensity. So it was cool. Yeah. They had went over it. Vince went over and over it, but it was cool to have that opportunity to do that. But that was because of Candido. Um, you know, kind of giving me his blessing to them saying, yeah, these guys will be good in that. But who knew like that, you know, that was going to be such an iconic moment. Yeah. Absolutely. In wrestling, absolutely. you know, um, 20 some years later. Yeah. Something so like yeah, it was really said, cool to be part of it. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, it's not hyperbole to say like, you know, a, a, uh, industry changing, you know, a business changing moment. moment. Yeah. Like who knew? For right. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah. So cool that there you were playing a part in it, man. You, like it's like I said again at the beginning uh, of the you know people might be like, well, you know they might see Dan McDevitt's on the podcast this week. Well, who's that? And I knew you'd make a great guest because I know all these stories. I mean, be you know you have a story with The Rock, you have one with Stone Cold. Uh, Lita is the, you know the first person she mentions in her Hall of Fame speech is you. Plus, not to mention all the people that you've trained, but. There's one more story I want you to tell, and that's um, you had, as a guest at your wedding, the Iron Sheik. Yeah, yeah. Can you, can you just tell me a little bit about what that was like? Well, so, that, you know, some people, so some people book bands, and some people book DJs for their wedding. I booked the Iron Sheik, um, which ultimately is probably part of the reason that my marriage only lasted six months yeah right because at the time <clears throat> i thought it was a great idea but to my credit before anybody passes judgment i had met my wife in wrestling so That's it was right. a wrestling themed wedding um and so it kind of made sense to me even though i knew how crazy the sheik was um and i knew how out of control he could get um i just figured like it's one of those things like you hear these stories and if you're not in the business, I mean, I, I have people outside the business that through Howard Stern and stuff like that, had seen the iron cheek on or heard these stories that people go, there's no way that this person is this out of control, but he is, yeah. you know, he, he's one of those people that when he passes will always be looked at. There was never going to be another iron cheek. He's one of these people that you meet in a lifetime, but there's never going to be another, you know, there's only one. He really is. (laughs) So I had him and um, 
I had him at my wedding and, um, and, and then my wife at the time, her one request, because her family didn't really care for wrestling. My family's a little more laid back. And, um, she was like, okay, well just don't let him get on the microphone. (laughs) And to my credit, I went to the best man and the people that would control that. Cause obviously when you're getting married, you know, you're up there doing the stuff with your wife and you're doing pictures. Like you're not in control of like who gets on the microphone or who gets up and get a speech. You're, you're the, the groom, you know what exactly. I mean? And you're dealing with all the BS <laughs> that goes along with that. So I made that request, but Stevie Richards and Jeff Jones, who were good friends of mine and were at the wedding, um, I guess they went to the best man and they needled him my best man. And maybe we, he was in, they were putting pressure on him, intimidating. I don't know. So I'm sitting at the table and all of a sudden my best man's talking, he's talking about our friendship or whatever. And, um, mine and him. And then he says, but before, you know, I finish up, there's someone else that wants to say something uh, to Kim and Danny. And all of a sudden, the sheet gets up, and I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> and um, he hands him the mic, and he says, the first thing he says is, what's, I'm like, this is going to be bad, is he says, I want to say to my very good friend, Danny McDermott, <laughs> and his wife, Chim. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he calls Kim, Chim, and he says you're my good friend Danny McDermott is obviously not even my name you know <laughs> and uh he his, the first thing he says is I want to tell everybody that this is a good man not like Saddam Hussein Osama bin Laden or Hitler <laughs> and I'm like wait a minute like in order to say that I'm a good person you just had to compare me <laughs> <laughs> to three of the worst human beings that have ever existed on planet Earth. Like, yeah, by comparison, that have, dude. that have killed hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people. Like that, yeah, that's what you had to compare me to to say I'm a good person. Like, and I'm and she's just looking at me like, what? And then, because if you've heard the stories or you've seen Iron Sheik on, um, if you've seen Iron Sheik on, uh, on Howard Stern or whatever. It's not a joke to him. There's nothing joking with him when it comes to Hulk Hogan. No. Like, if there's someone you can say to Iron Sheik to get him really pissed off, and a lot of this stuff goes beyond wrestling and is, like, really personal, you know, to him. Um, Like, you start talking about Hulk Hogan, and he's not working you when he gets pissed off. Like, he gets really pissed off. Yeah. So all of a sudden, as this is happening and he's saying this and, and I can just feel my wife crunching my hand like I'm going to freaking kill you when he's saying this stuff. And the guests are like, what's Saddam Hussein, Hitler? What are you talking about? <coughs> Here comes Stevie Richards and Jeff Jones with a Hulkamania forever banner uh-huh. walking in front of the wedding part, walking in front of the area where Sheik's at. And he loses it. And F you, F Hawk Hogan, blah. And just, I mean, dropping slur after slur 
cuss word after cuss word about Hulk Hogan. Then for the next five minutes, it's nothing. It's I'll break Hulk Hogan's back. I'll F him and make him humble. I'll blo- You know what I mean? And just going on. And I'm looking at the wedding party that is just in complete shock. Like her half of the party, she's flushed white. Um, and yeah, and then it, it just kind of fell apart from there. <laughs> um, <laughs> Shocking that the marriage only lasted six months <laughs> after that. Six months later, the marriage was over. I don't think she ever got past that. Her family, def- most of her family, I never spoke to after that. Um, yeah, it was, you know, I can look back on it 16, 17 years later and laugh at it. <clears throat> but it probably wasn't the best decision. Probably, probably. Uh, well, here, here's, Dan, here's, here's my quick story. It's very similar to yours. You'll probably remember, uh, you might. Uh, you, brought, you brought Sheik in for a spot, uh, for a show, and I think it was in Dundalk. And, um, you know, this is when I was with the Baltimore Sun and I would, you would let me come down and go backstage and do these video interviews that we would put on the Sun's website. And so you set me up to talk with the Sheik backstage and I'm pretty sure you were there watching it because I think you got a kick out of it. But Yeah. uh, Yeah. So I sit down with Sheik and I say, yeah, we're going to, you know, introduce myself and we shake hands. And I said, just one thing, sir, you know, I was very respectful, called him sir. I said, this is for the Baltimore Sun, which is a, you know, a major metropolitan newspaper, family paper uh, for our website. We can't have any cursing, just so you know. And he said he was sitting there drinking a Coors Light. Now, I don't know how many Coors Lights he had had by that point, um, but he said, no problem, sir. You tell the sheik don't curse. The sheik don't curse. I'm like, oh, great. Thank you. All right. So we start the interview. We start rolling. And... Um, He's great. He's answering every question. You know, everything's fine. He's calm. He's good. And then I made the mistake of, of mentioning Hulk Hogan. You know, it was this, you know, this heat between you and Hulk Hogan, what's this all about? And that flipped the switch, just like you said, Dan. And, <laughs> I rem- um, and I'm laughing because I, I was watching this. Yeah. And I remember, like, I was standing by the side, and I remember what I – because I warned you, it's like, a, it's like the movie Gremlins, like, don't feed them after midnight, don't spill <laughs> water on them. Right? Like I mentioned, yeah. like, you cannot, under any circumstances, mention Hawk Hogan. No. Because then he switch just goes off. off in his head. A he went off. off and and then, that's yeah. the thing, yeah. He went off, and then, um, like, all the people, all the boys in the locker room, like, we gathered a crowd. Everybody's watching. And uh, I'll, I'll just paraphrase a few of the things he said. Now, this also is a family uh, podcast. So our production guy, Mark Brown, if, as you're listening to this, you're going to have to get that bleep button ready. Okay, I'm going to say the words and you'll have to bleep them later. But as soon as I mentioned Hulk Hogan, he goes, that Hulk Hogan, that jabroni mother, no good ass, son of a, I put him in the camel clutch, him in the, he, I humble him, he rubbed suntan lotion on his, that no good son of a, mother, there we, there you go. Now I don't know if Mark Brown <laughs> yeah. can bleep all that, but I mean, it's, it's just, one big beep. It's one going to be one, one big, big beep. beep. And he just, but that's went, it. Yeah. He went on and on and on, and uh, and I was like, okay, well, uh, we'll have to edit that. Thank you, sir. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, no problem, no problem, sir. I remember looking at your face when that was happening, and you <laughs> were in such shock, like because you don't realize, like it, the trigger, that trigger on him, it's so real. Yep. Like and you, the passion is so real and people think like it's a stick, but it's not a stick. They, people say, Oh, Howard Stern, like, yeah, he does the stick with Hawk. They bring it on like, no, that's what I've always said. Like, it is not a stick. 
No. Like you seriously set off a switch in that dude's head and he like his like eyes almost go like white where you you know what I mean? He just like flips the switch and he is freaking one hundred percent serious. Yes, he is. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well Dan, I could I guess we, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say is everybody in my ex wife's family found out. Yes. <laughs> but, yes. <laughs> So. All right. Well, Dan, like I said earlier, man, we could we could sit here and, and I could listen to your stories and we could do a you know podcast. You know, maybe we'll have to bring you back one day and tell some more stories because I know there's some great ones we didn't even get to just for time purposes. But um, yeah, before I let you go, though, can you just let people know um, how they can follow MCW, uh, where they can follow you on social media, the website and, you know, plug uh, if you got some shows coming up? Yeah. So, I mean, the website obviously it's www.mcwprowrestling.com. Um, but go to our YouTube. Um, we're, we're pretty good for indie promotion, putting out um, content on YouTube. Just search MCW Pro Wrestling on YouTube and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. We put out, flat, obviously we got 25 years of history. Um, every Friday we release, a, we, we, release, um, we release a Flashback Friday match. Um, many of which are these stars. I think we just did one of Adam Cole's matches a couple weeks ago. But we also do our own podcast, which you've been on, the MCW cast, and that streams on YouTube. Um, and, you know, we, we release a lot of content there. So also on Facebook and Twitter, just search MCW Pro Wrestling and make sure to give us a follow on those, on those platforms as well. And you can stay up to date with what we're doing. All right, I'm going to send a reminder out as well to let everybody know that if you're listening to this on Monday, that tomorrow on ROH Week by Week, it premieres 1 p.m. Eastern on ROH's YouTube channel, you can see a match from the MCW Arena, uh, Shane Taylor Promotions, the ROH World Six-Man Tag Team Champions, putting the titles on the line in the MCW Arena against Black Wall Street, which uh, MCW fans will know. Black Wall Street, one of the top factions in MCW for years and years. So uh, this was something special, and um, and you can watch it on ROH week by week. Dan, man, this is I, I appreciate you giving me so much of your time. This was an um, outstanding conversation, as I knew it would be. Um, so, man, thank, thanks again for, for joining us. Yeah, not a problem. Thanks for having me. Again, thanks to everybody at ROH for approving that. All right, and let me also thank everyone out there for listening today and remind you that a new episode of the ROH Strong Podcast drops every Monday morning on ROHWrestling.com and most podcast platforms. Keep it locked into ROHWrestling.com and ROH's social media channels. That's at Ring of Honor on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook.com slash Ring of Honor for news regarding upcoming episodes. Also, for the latest ROH news and views, you can read my column, X-Files, every Friday on ROHWrestling.com. Until next time, this is Kevin X saying stay safe and let's all be ROH strong.